Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Mormon Stories Podcast. I'm your host, John DeLynn. It is July 30th, 2020. Uh, I apologize for the hyperbole, but I do believe that we have one of the most important episodes that we'll ever have on Mormon Stories Podcast. This will stand shoulder to shoulder with the Michael Coe interview, with the Tom Phillips interview, with the Bart Ehrman interview, and with our top interviews. It'll be an immediate top five, uh, I'm guessing. I am here today with Dr. Robert Rittner, who is a world-famous Egyptologist. That's what I'll call him. He'll, we'll, we'll have him tell you his official title in just a second. We have covered Book of Mormon scripture historicity a lot in the past on Mormon Stories podcast. Uh, we've covered Book of Mormon, Book of Abraham. Recently, we covered the Joseph Smith translation. You know, we've had Brett Metcalf on to talk about uh, Book of Abraham. We've had David Bakavoy. We've had Dan Vogel. But what we've never had is a legit, uh, never Mormon, world-class Egyptologist to talk to us about the Book of Abraham. And just like we had the amazing Dr. Michael Coe on, who was the Yale uh, Mesoamerican uh, anthropologist or archaeologist, to give us an outsider's view of a Book of Mormon historicity, uh, we have brought Dr. Robert Rittner on to give us an outsider's view of Book of Abraham Book of Abraham historicity or authenticity, and uh, to talk about the apologetics uh, that have surrounded uh, the Book of Abraham from Hugh Nibley to uh, Daniel Peterson to John Gee to Kerry Mulstein and, uh, and the like. So it is going to be an epic multi-hour uh, Mormon Stories podcast interview, and there's more. As Ron Popeil used to say, we have with us RFM, Radio Free Mormon, part of the Bill Real Mormon Discussions Network of podcasts, because RFM is a brilliant analyst and amateur historian of the Book of Abraham. So RFM, thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited to be here, John. This is going to be a great podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It may even be up there with your Radio Free Mormon interview from last November. Yes, and you guys should check that out. The RFM uh, interview was epic as well. But but RFM, seriously, we're so glad to have you. Shout out to Bill Real for uh, all his good work too. Well, thank you. I'll pass that along. Before we begin uh, our interview with Dr. Rittner, we are going to be making a very important announcement at the beginning and at the end of every episode interview that we do. You'll you'll hear just today as Dr. Rittner talks about his story that he he comes uh, to Egyptology with just a pure love of Egyptology. And what you'll find is, is that his desire and his pursuing of Egyptology came at probably a significant financial sacrifice uh, on his part, even though he's at a world-class institution, maybe the world-class institution for Egyptology. But having said that, he also comes at his interest in the Book of Abraham from a similarly, I'll just say altruistic standpoint in that He'll, he'll tell us later that his work on the Book of Abraham, the total amount of money he's made from all of his work, which includes books and articles, on, a book and articles on the Book of Abraham, the total amount that he's received in terms of finances is less than what he has been paid for one presentation. So it, it is out of a pure love for Egyptology and for history and for accuracy and honesty that he comes to this discussion. Having said all that, it is also true that Dr. Rittner is experiencing a health condition. He is in need of a kidney donor, 
And, and so as we begin and end each of our episodes, we are going to let people know that with his permission, because what RFM and I uh, hope to achieve, and I brought RFM on not only for his expertise, but also we hope that people far and wide share not only this interview, but also the, the notification that we are in search of a kidney donor for Dr. Rittner, because we would love to uh, prolong Dr. Rittner's life so that he can do his amazing work. We will be letting everybody know that the way to contact uh, Dr. Rittner is through his contact, Dana McLean, at the Northwestern Medical Transplant Coordinator. Phone number is 312-695-0828. And um, if any of you want to help save Dr. Rittner's life and his ongoing research, we are going to just make that appeal uh, over and over again. And without uh, any further ado, Dr. Robert Whitner, thank you so much for joining us today on Mormon Stories Podcast and on Radio Free Mormon. My pleasure, John. Anything you want to correct about that introduction? Uh, or add to? <laughs> uh, no, you, you referred to my title. Would you like me to give it to you? The, yeah, yeah. Tell us your title and your uh, kind of... Uh, yeah, your credentials as it relates well, my, to... My official title is the Rowe Professor of Egyptology at the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago. Okay, uh, and and your, and your education in, background? Um, I got my PhD from the University of Chicago, and I got my BA in psychology from Rice University in Houston. Go, go Houston. Yes. Fellow Houstonian. <laughs> Um, also, j just so people know, sometimes we tend to think, oh, elite universities are Harvard, Yale, Stanford. Um, you know, and I, and I understand that you were teaching at Yale at, at some point, and then you transferred to Chicago. Tell us why Chicago is a really important institution for Egyptology, just for those who don't know. Well, the University of Chicago is where Egyptology began in the Western Hemisphere. When the university was being assembled, they actually hired James Henry Breasted and sent him to Germany to learn Egyptology, which was really a European phenomenon only. And so he came back and brought the field to Chicago. So every program in the United States is ultimately an offshoot of the Chicago program. You're either a student of a Chicago professor or the student of a student of a Chicago professor. So when I was at Yale, for example, um, I, I was a colleague of Michael Coe. I went there from teaching at Chicago as a grad student, went to Yale, and when my professor retired, I was lured back and I was happy to come back because it's the premier institution. Yale is a good university, but Chicago for my field is better. We have a higher concentration of Egyptologists than anywhere else. We have three Egyptologists plus an Egyptian archaeologist, and no other no other university in the Western Hemisphere has that. And that's rare, that's rare even in Europe. So we are the center. And I, I now hold the, the, the first ever chair in Egyptology. It was just created in September, and I was the first awardee of it. So that's a great honor, because Excellent. even Breasted did not have a chair in Egyptology. 
So it's it, a great it, burden to have. Yes. And it's also probably worth noting as we will get to talking about John Gee, that, that John, John Gee at one point was a student of yours. True. He was at Yale. Yes. Okay. And just out of curiosity, what's, what's the, what's the elite or preeminent, uh, university, you know, in Europe or elsewhere for the study of Egyptology, maybe even in, in Egypt itself? Well, there, there, there are a number of choices in, in Europe. Uh, the people associated with the British Museum are, are major scholars. Oxford, Cambridge, and by the way, by the way uh, professors currently at Oxford and Cambridge, actually the Oxford one just, just retired, but they're both our Chicago students. That's awesome. <laughs> one of my students is now at Cambridge. One of my colleague's students who was ahead of me, her student just retired from Oxford. So we're, we, we've done well. Excellent. But they're, they're also the, the, the Echo Pratique in Paris, the Louvre, the, Louvre, the Sorbonne in Paris, uh, Heidelberg in Germany, and Berlin, et cetera. They're, they're, they're numerous Good. institutions. It's far more widespread in Europe than it is here. Okay. It's a boutique well, field. <laughs> what's that? Say that again? It's a boutique field. There are very few people that can go into it. There are relatively few jobs, and it doesn't pay well. So right. uh, it's an academic career. Well, let's get into that. So let's talk a bit about your background growing up in Houston and what got you ultimately interested in Egyptology. I had an outstanding second grade teacher and we would do modules in geographic locations and societies. We uh, had Japanese tea parties. We had Hawaiian luau. I tasted poi for the one and only time when I was in second grade. Uh, and we did a section on Egypt making pyramids, you know, cardboard pyramids, and it was the pyramids that stuck. Now, most kids go through a stage of dinosaurs and then move on to something else, and often dinosaurs to mummies to something more mature and more lucrative, and I got stuck at the mummy stage. So by the time I was in junior high, I had read every single book on Egypt that was in the Houston Public Library. It wasn't a huge amount, but it was maybe 50 books. So I was fully prepared to ask deep and penetrating historical questions of my uh, junior high school world history teacher. And when I did, she was flabbergasted and had no clue of what I was, what I was asking about. What was that question you, you asked her? I remember you mentioning this. I, think I was, I desperately wanted to know whether the body in, KV, in Kings Valley 55 was the tomb of Akhenaten, whether we had identified him as Akhenaten or not. <laughs> we still don't know that, by the way. And she didn't know 
who on earth I was talking about. <laughs> it was it was an extreme disappointment <laughs> because I just I just knew that this advanced teacher would have all the answers to uh, the question. So that that led me on what has become a lifetime of asking questions about things like who's buried in what tomb. So maybe a tad bit precocious as a as a junior high student. I was probably horribly obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, re, re, you broke up a bit. Repeat that, Robert. If you, Doctor Rittner, if you don't mind. I said I was probably horribly obnoxious. I would go <laughs> on to be the head of the debate team in high school, and then in acting in college, in addition to my degrees. So uh, I have no trouble standing on a stage and being forceful. Uh, I, I don't get embarrassed. I have to ask this. I, I grew up loving Abbott and Costello and Dracula and Frankenstein and Werewolf. Uh, do, do you remember watching the Mummy movie or any of the Mummy movies that came out? Uh, the Two of the major reasons why I'm in Egyptology is uh, Boris Karloff's The Mummy, and uh, which I've actually published about by the way, because it's it, the, the plot is actually drawn from an ancient interesting story. Uh, and H. Ryder Haggard's Cleopatra. And I was, a, I was a child in 1963 when the Liz Taylor Cleopatra came out. And I was, I was not allowed to see that. It was too racy. <laughs> so, um, but I was, I was absolutely overwhelmed by all the publicity and all things Egyptian. Uh, there was also a wonderful movie theater in Houston, the Metropolitan Movie Theater downtown, which was all in Egyptian design with sphinxes and t Egyptian tile on the floor and wall paintings, etc. It was the most fantastic place. So I think I was drawn initially to Egypt by the exoticism. But then once I began to read about the culture, it's just so absolutely fascinating and so very different and insightful. And it, although it's early, it's not primitive. And that's, that's what I try to teach in my Egyptian religion classes, because religion is what I basically do. That's what I was hired to do. Religion? Uh, Egyptian religion, specifically. Uh, so I publish religious texts, which, of course, is why then I was asked specifically to look at the Joseph Smith papyrus, because it's a religious text. I have colleagues that work on legal texts and, meta, uh, and other kinds of texts, but I work on the religious texts specifically. And I teach classes on Egyptian religion, um, you know, 20 lectures explaining all the various nuances of whether the Egyptians are polytheistic, how they relate to the idea of deity, uh, what are the multiple creation myths, what are the concepts of the various different gods, how do you pray to them, how do you sacrifice to them, what are the burial rituals, what are the requirements for burial, what are the papyri that go with burial, what are the other objects like the canopic jars? What are the elements of embalming? Why would you have jars that are next to the bed? What do they contain? Why would they even be there? All of, I also work in ancient Egyptian medicine, so I can explain the embalming from a medical point of view. Um, so that's what I do. Got it. 
Dr. Rittner, can I break in here for a second if you're done with Absolutely. the background, John? You said you were asked to look at the Joseph Smith papyrus. Who asked you and what, was, what happened there? RFM, I'm totally sorry. This is going to sound really rude. I had one quick question about his background before we jump into that, and I just don't want to be totally out of sequence. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. But that's a super important question. I th Robert, I think it's important, and I alluded to this in our intro, that you, your life didn't, wasn't necessarily setting you up to become an academic. Do you mind sharing with us how your life was being set up, a bit about your parents and their occupation, and, and kind of what decisions you had to make in terms of career that may or may not have been maybe what your parents were shooting for? Yeah. And what, what might have been financially advantageous for you? Well, parents generally want their children to do something successful, but my, my father owned a major sheet metal company in Houston that, that put in all the ductwork for air conditioning and all the major high-rises in what is now one of the major cities in the United States. And I was the eldest son, and I was fully expected to take over that company. And I did not want to do that because I don't want, I did not want to be an engineer and spend all of my time dealing with numbers. I'm much more interested in humanistic issues, which is why I went into, I, I, I already knew when I was in junior high devouring every book in the Houston library that Egyptology is quite what I wanted to be. Um, and so, I didn't even get a chance to pick out my own university. I was told by my father I was going to Rice because he went to Rice and because that was where I would get the best engineering degree. And so I'm, I would, became an immediate disappointment when I got there and took a psychology degree instead. And I did that on purpose because psychology had the least number of required courses and you can do a psychological interpretation of almost anything. So I took a whole series of medieval courses, which I could then do a psychological interpretation of, and Jungian psychology, which actually used Egyptian ideas and made reference to Egyptian texts. So long story short, I was able to, uh, shift my medieval work to do Coptic things. And by the time I was a senior undergraduate, I already had an article in print on the influence of Coptic Egyptian monks on medieval Ireland. And that allowed me to get into the University of Chicago pretty much against my parents' will. Uh, and go on to do Egyptology. Uh, I had to be self-supporting because they weren't going to pay for it. And uh, fortunately for me, I had a younger brother and he took over the family business. So that got me off the hook. But it, my parents were not accepting of my profession until 1975, I think it was, when we, there was the large Tutankhamun exhibit here. And there were lines around the block at the Field Museum. And I was able to walk them all the way ahead of the line and write in and give them a private tour. And then it became okay. Mm, that's awesome. I love that story. Before we jump to our friend's question, just one more quick question. Or, um, 
Tell us about your training in the field of Egyptology. Just a brief kind of overview, like uh, who'd you study with and and uh, kind of what were the main things you did a thesis or dissertation on and anything that we should know about your training that could tie into Mormonism later that will lead us to RFM's great question about how you first got Perfect. introduced to, uh, became aware of the Book of Abraham. I, well, Egyptology at the University of Chicago was, it's changing now because the university is forcing us to push people out faster uh, for economic reasons. But when I was going through there, the program, it was a four-year program because you walk in, no one has hieroglyphs. It's not like you, you've learned hieroglyphs in high school. That's not taught. So you come in knowing absolutely nothing, and it takes two full years to learn even the basic stages of Middle Egyptian, which is just one of the multiple language phases of Egyptian that you need to know to be an Egyptian. You need to know Old Egyptian, Middle Egyptian, Late Egyptian, Demotic, and Coptic. All of those. They have different grammar, different vocabulary choices, and in some and there are multiple scripts. So there is there are hieroglyphs, which are like printing. There is hieratic, which is like our longhand, a cursive. And there is demotic, which is like shorthand. My specialty is actually demotic. That's from the Ptolemaic period, the time from Alexander the Great up until the Roman conquest. That's the time period in which, by the way, the Joseph Smith papyrus was written. So tell us the years, tell us the years of kind of, you know, uh, Egyptian uh, kind of relevance or period. Dominance. You're talking about 332 to 30 BC. So th about, did you, did you say 300 BC? 332 to 30 BC. Okay. And the Joseph Smith is somewhere around 100 BC, somewhere roughly in there. We keep we keep arguing about exactly when it might be. If you if you try, originally people were basing the date on that papyrus on the shape of the because handwriting changes, handwriting schools change over time, so you can judge a date by the way that people write their squiggles. If you try to read your aunts handwritten postcards, you'll notice that older people have a different handwriting style than, well, modern people don't have any handwriting style at all because they don't know how to do longhand. But uh, that's used for dating. However, with this set, that set of documents, there are also personal names in the, that are in the text and that from genealogies that we can reconstruct from other documents belonging to them. Uh, Michael Kinnan uh, was able to show what their proper date range is. So we have a better date now. It was originally thought it was Roman date, but we now know it's Ptolemaic. So you're saying the the approximate years, a it's year somewhere range around of, 100 BC. Of the, of the papyri that Joseph the papyri, acquired. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Um, okay, so... So you, get four, so you get four years of classes that include multiple languages. You also have to learn history, art, culture, religion. I mean, I can tell you about what sandal styles are. I can tell you about the food techniques of ancient Egyptians. 
Um, I can tell you all about their prayers. I can tell you about their economics. I've actually done mathematics in Egyptian. I had to learn how to do fractions. The Egyptians only use unit fractions except for two-thirds, five-sixths. So every time you make a fraction, you have to break it down into unit fractions, which is pretty cumbersome. Hmm. So it's really remarkable they were able to build pyramids with such accuracy, because which they could do. And we have their surviving um, mathematical homework exercises. We have their school exercises. We know how they taught language. We have, from Egypt, almost everything you could imagine. So we have their literary tales, and I've published those. I've done translations of Egyptian literature uh, in a collection for Yale University when I was there. I've done translations of religious texts that are relevant to the Bible in a series called Context of Scripture, where we actually lined up items that were biblical passages with something that was comparable or relevant in all the ancient Near Eastern languages. And I did a large chunk of the Egyptian ones in three uh, volumes. Tell us uh, any big name you know, pillars in the field that, that were part of your training that you want to mention that are worth mentioning? Well, my primary teacher was Klaus Baer. I mean, I, and I actually became his replacement when Klaus became ill. He had a, he had a stroke. Uh, I was his handpicked successor as a graduate student to take over his courses. And he was the, he was to have been the chief reader of my dissertation, but he didn't survive. And so Ed Winty, who is, uh, was our specialist in Egyptian religion and a logical person also to work on with me, uh, he was my chief reader for my dissertation. And I'm guessing, I, I know Klaus Baer will, will come into the Book of Abraham story later uh, as we talk about it. So he Well, that's the answer to RFM's question. It's because I had been the, the student of and successor of Klaus Baer and worked in religious texts. Uh, that's why I was, someone reached out to me. So RFM, please jump in with any follow-up to the question you, you had for Robert. Okay, and actually, because I've already heard the first part of his answer, which dates to 2002, I think yes. that in order to keep this chronological, we should probably go back to perhaps Mormonism's most famous pupil of yours, Dr. Rittner, whose name is John Gee. He is known far and wide among many, if not most, Mormons as the foremost Egyptologist who writes and presents frequently in defense of the authenticity of the book of, of the Mormon scripture called the Book of Abraham. And I understand that he was a student of yours at Yale. Is that correct? Well, the latter statement is true. He was a student of mine at Yale. I would not say he's the foremost person who comments on Book of Abraham. Oh, I was just trying to maybe, say within Mormon circles. From a Mormon perspective, well, then I think Kerry Molstein would have uh, something to say about that. And, and we will talk in depth about Guy and Molstein later. So what I want to jump to now is doing a, a jump back into kind of early 19th century uh, Egyptian slash U.S. history and, and start talking kind of a bit about the chronology 
of the Book of Abraham, which predates the Book of Abraham. So, Dr. Rittner, if we could begin, tell us about the state of Egyptology in, let's just say, the 1810s and 1820s. I've heard I've heard words like Egyptology mania or Egyptomania. Talk about like what was going on in the field of archaeology, anthropology, Egyptology, and what would have led to some mummies and some scrolls showing up in Kirtland, Ohio, in in 1835. Okay. Well, uh, Egyptology actually, modern Egyptology begins with the Napoleonic conquest of Egypt, the invasion of Egypt. Because Napoleon brought not merely soldiers when he entered Egypt, but also a whole series of scholars, usually referred to by the French term the savants. And these scholars were brought in to uh, take records and make drawings of everything they could find in Egypt, because it was an exotic country. And Napoleon was fully intent on making it a French colony. And so these scholars recorded uh, animal life, plant life, and for Egyptology's sake, they recorded every square inch of every major temple they could find. Some of those no longer exist. Uh, So this this then resulted in a multi-volume set of books called the Description of Egypt, which are absolutely critical for us even to this day because it records the state of monuments that are much more pristine than they are now. So that didn't take a while, that took a while for the book to actually appear. But what did immediately start appearing were things that the army was finding, uh, antiquities, which the French were loading up and bringing back to France. But since they were at war at that point with England and Wellington, the major French ship was seized, was, was destroyed off the coast of Alexandria, Abukir. Uh, Frank Gaudio has found the wreckage of the French fleet just recently in the, the waters there in the Mediterranean. But before it sank, the British unloaded for themselves all the major finds that the French were, were taking back from Egypt, and they brought them back to Britain. That included a major stone that a French soldier had found reused in a fort and at the fort of Rosetta. That now exists in the British Museum, but before it had been spirited away, copies were made. It was inked. And so impressions were made, and some of those made it back to France. And so you had British scholars... Thomas Young, and you had a French scholar, Francois Champollion, uh, studying these inscriptions, and Champollion was the one who, in 1820s, was able to make the first elements of decipherment of Egyptian hieroglyphs. So, because Napoleon was his conquest of Egypt, suddenly Egyptian-themed items became all the rage in Paris. 
So there was even an elaborate Sevres porcelain uh, service that was created for the imperial court. And everyone was making neo-Egyptian ideas. And Egyptian elements were also being inspired from, uh, had been picked up during the French Revolution as being something that was anti-Christian. So they, they went to the Isis cult and there were fountains of Isis that were built in Paris with water spilling, squirting out of the breasts of the goddess. Uh, so there was, a, there was the theme that Egypt was the new revolutionary uh, sort of society that would start a new beginning. And that was true everywhere because of all the sudden influx of new Egyptian antiquities coming out of Egypt. And now suddenly the first ability to begin to read it. So everyone was fascinated by that. But of course, the knowledge of being able to read in the 1820s in, in Paris would not have been available to anyone in the United States and certainly not in the heart of the country. So anyone discussing Egyptian hieroglyphs in Kirtland, Ohio, or Chicago, or even New York would know nothing, absolutely nothing about this. Got it. How would someone like a Michael Chandler, you know, I, I know that he acquired the, the mummies and the, and the papyra from, from someone else. Well, let me, let me back up and give oh, you yeah. the story Please. you actually asked for. So uh, Antonio Labolo was an agent for the French who, he, he was an Italian soldier, but he was an agent for the French for finding these antiquities that were being brought back for the market in France. And roughly uh, somewhere around 1820, he was on an excavation in the vicinity of Thebes. We don't know exactly where. It was either Thebes or nearby Thebes. And he seems to have acquired 11 mummies, which were then shipped back to Italy. He died in 1830, I believe. And then his heirs in order to make money off of these mummies, because mummies were now being traded as, uh, as objects for decoration. They were being ground up for medicine. There were so many cat mummies that were being brought up that they were used to fuel the trains in England in lieu of coal. Wow. Um, and so they were, they were then shipped off to New York to find a buyer. And they ended up in the hands of a traveling salesman, with uh, Michael Chandler, who then exhibited them and marketed them. Well, the, the mummies came also, some of them would have papyri, the, the Book of Some of the Dead, funerary papyri that were wrapped up with the mummy. Uh, and these mummies were slowly dwindled down in number as he traveled from New York to Philadelphia, New Orleans, and ultimately to Kirtland. Uh, and he was selling bits and pieces of them here and there. So th there were four left when he got to Kirtland, and he was advertising them by claiming that in order to sell them, 
that these date from the time of the prophets. These go all the way back to biblical times, and here you can see the faces of Egyptians who will have talked to, jo to Joseph. No, this was his selling pitch because this ups the price. You know, and none of the mummies is ever going to be a, you know, a workman. You know, this is a pharaoh. This is the princess. This is because, of course, that also increases the value. And so having told the assembled people of Ohio, as he had elsewhere, you know, here are people who talk to Joseph. Then they look at him and say, oh, okay, they're linked to the patriarchs. And that is an interesting segue. So, so I guess there's there's two there's these two things happening. There's just this fascination with all things Egyptian, kind of like a pop culture almost phenomenon. Absolutely, yes. And then there's all these people that care about the Bible. And if anyone's read the Old Testament, they would associate Moses, uh, Abraham, and Joseph, meaning Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Joseph, you know, one of the That's twelve it. sons of of Jacob who became Israel. They would know those three names and they'd say, whoa, mummies in Egypt, that's Moses and Joseph and, you know, and uh, Abraham, right? And that's all they would know. Yeah, about, about Egypt. So, so, of course. So, all I could actually tell you about Egypt is what you read in Genesis and Exodus. Right. Yeah. Really quickly, I want to go just a tiny bit back to 1828, 9. 1830. One of the things that was really important about Joseph Smith, he starts out as a treasure digger with the seer stone, telling people he could find buried treasure by, I don't know, 1828. Let's just say that jig is up. He's, you know, he's in front of the courts. He's been feathered, yes. Yeah, he, lots of lots of problems. He He's run afoul of the law. But, but there's still a perception that he has these powers, okay? When he comes up with the story for the Book of Mormon and the plates, and, and Moroni and Nephi or whatever, and the angels, he, he, he names Egyptian as the language that the golden plates uh, were written on. And he doesn't just call it Egyptian, he calls it reformed Egyptian. Can you, is there anything, any observation you have about like why he would have picked Egyptian as the language of the golden plates? And if, if anything like reformed Egyptian, if that has any meaning to you, or if you even have any theories about like, why he would have picked Egyptian as, as what was written on the plates or what that would have meant, or if that would have even been possible that Israelis, you know, people living in Jerusalem in 600 BC would be writing on golden plates in Egyptian. Well, there's a, there's a long series of, of myths of Egyptians moving to the West or other peoples moving to the West, the Jews moving to the West, the lost tribes moving to the West. Uh, in, my, in my first article on Coptic uh, influence on Ireland, I referred to a story that had been circulating in medieval Europe that while the British were claiming in front of the papal court that they had priority on the British islands because they were descended from Brutus and wandering Trojans. The Scottish claimed that they were 
Sorry, my dog is barking in the background. No problem. We're keeping it real. Uh, calm confinement. Uh, the Scottish position was that they were their nation was founded by traveling Egyptians who had fled west, and the Princess Scotia was the Egyptian queen who founded the Scottish throne, and that is where you got the name Scotland and the Stone of Scone. So these wandering Egyptians created Scotland. So the, there was already in European notion the idea of people coming from Turkey, people coming from Egypt, and founding the civilizations farther to the west. It's a, it's a cultural link that gives them priority. So Egypt is a logical choice, because if you're going to go back, what is the earliest one you can get? Basically, Egypt is it. And in answer to your question, um, there is no such thing as reformed Egyptian. It's not a stage of any of the Egyptian languages. And I, I told you, though, that we have multiple examples of them, and that, that is not one of them. The, the final stage is Coptic, which is written with the uh, Greek alphabet and some signs for sounds that Greek doesn't have. I have seen the characters that are supposed to contain Reformed Egyptian. They were even sent to me when I was a, just starting my being a professor at Yale to see what my impression of them was. I think it was checking me out to see whether be a uh, good professor down the line for some would be sent to me. That is also foreshadowing. Uh, I don't know that to be true. But my response was, well, yes, some of these things look vaguely Egyptian. They're, they're, none of them are actual Egyptian. But uh, the problem is when you have more than 5,000 hieroglyphic signs, more than 5,000, and you have cursive versions of that, which are reduced to squiggly lines that look sort of like Arabic or chicken scratches. And you can further reduce those into other little squiggles for the demotic, which is like shorthand. It is almost impossible not to find a shape that can be said to look like some Egyptian sign. I mean, it's like finding images in clouds. So I can throw sand on the floor and say, yep, that looks like the following word. <laughs> right, right. RFM, I want to tap on your expertise here as well. In, in all your studies and in, in your just kind of best best speculation, any idea why Joseph would have picked Reformed Egyptian as, you know, the claim for, for you know, the language in which the, the Book of Mormon Golden Plates were written? Well, there's a couple of things. First off, I'm coming from my background as having been an avid apologist for the Book of Mormon and also, of course, the Book of Abraham some time ago. Uh, two things. First off, Joseph Smith, through the Book of Mormon, identifies the characters on the plates as Reformed Egyptian that originally they had written in Egyptian, and a thousand years later, over the span of the Book of Mormon, that had been changed among them to a state that they called Reformed Egyptian. Um, not that it was generally known as Reformed Egyptian, but that's what the uh, Nephites called it within the context of the Book of Mormon. So in that way, actually, from an apologetic point of view, 
I could see that as mirroring the development of the Egyptian language among the actual Egyptians from the hieroglyphs through, excuse me, the hieratic, the demotic, perhaps even the, the Coptic, going from a much more uh, complicated, uh, difficult to render type of um, ideogram to things that are easier to draw, take less time, and um, are easier to do with the cursive. Uh, first off, what do you think about that, Dr. Rittner? Do you see any similarity between the way the Book of Mormon presents their changing of the script of Egypt that they claim to have had with the way things really happened among the Egyptians? Well, the problem is the characters, as I recall them, include some shapes that look like a capital C, that look like printing as well as more squiggled shapes, which is to say it mingles two different styles for Egyptian, and the Egyptians wouldn't have done that. They would have kept them separate. Okay. Either, either you're gonna have printing or you're gonna have longhand, but you wouldn't use one letter as one kind and another letter as another. So as a writing system, it is confused. It's not what one would actually kind would probably use. And none of those signs show a direct link from a development from what you would have before. I mean, it's like someone just free associated and okay, I'll just draw a series of squiggles starting from, I think upper left, it looks like a, if I, I think it's a C, if I remember. I haven't looked at this in more than five years. So, um, but it's like, okay, I'll start with something that's very simple, and I will devolve it from that. And I could, I could generate something like that, too, but you wouldn't want to write with it. So, I mean, what, this is something you could ask a, a specialist who, who works with lots of writing. But I teach writing all the time, and I, I think it would be, that wouldn't be a workable system. Very good. The second part of my answer from John DeLynn is that even though uh, I think that Egyptology has certainly oh, improbably... Excuse me, can I jump back in one more yeah, thing? Yeah. I don't remember how many, how many signs there were, but there seems to have been quite a lot of them. And the one thing that is happening in the Egyptian language is it's simplifying its script. So you go through these thousands in hieroglyphs. And then by the time you reach Coptic, what they're doing is in order to write the Bible... They are, they are now shifting to a purely phonetic writing, so you only have 20-something signs. So what they have done is simplifying. And so if they were going to go any farther, all they would do is further simplify. You wouldn't suddenly have more signs, and that's what they've got. I mean, the English alphabet wouldn't suddenly add extra letters, because what will we use them for? So there is no reason why the script would actually be more complex after Coptic, after it had already shrunk down to its base number of limited signs. And there are in Coptic already sounds that were in the Greek, which they adopted, which the Egyptian didn't even have. So there were some of these signs they didn't really use. So if anything, it would, got, it would have gotten smaller it certainly wouldn't gotten have gotten larger. So that's the answer to your question. It, that absolutely wouldn't have been adopted because it's going in the wrong way. So there's your, there you go. 
Okay, thank you. And the second part of my answer to what John DeLynn had asked is that um, I'm pretty sure that we're very clear that at least in Joseph Smith's mind, and it may have been in the larger community as well at the time, that it was believed that Egyptian and Hebrew were related languages and that they were similar in some way. I think that today we understand they're very different kinds of languages with not really any connection between the two. But back then... Oh, no, they, they actually they are. They are? They are related, yes. Yeah, Egyptian and uh, Hebrew are cousins. Egyptian is not Semitic, but it's called part of the Hamido-Semitic or Afro-Asiatic languages. So there are many, many, many words and grammatical features that are similar between Egyptian and uh, Hebrew or Arabic or Ugaritic there are, there are Phoenician. There are, there are a number of these. E- Egyptian's closest relative is Berber, which is the language that's spoken by some of the tribes in Libya, though it was uh, actively suppressed by Muammar Gaddafi and was not allowed to be taught in schools and there are no good grammars of it and it's not well known. And that's where we get our word barbarian from, isn't it? Yes, it is. Well, let me ask you this. Wait, wait, uh, wait, I, wait RFM, I just, I just want to, j- just really quick. Like, for those who don't believe that Joseph Smith received golden plates by an angel, th- then they, they, you know, the only other thing to think about is he's sitting around thinking, okay, I'm going to tell people that I got plates from an angel, but they're going to ask me what, what the plates were written in. Hmm. He's thinking about a, a Jewish family in Jerusalem you know, the obvious answer would be, I think, Hebrew, you know? So I'm just, I guess I'm just trying to say, why in the world would he pick Egyptian and not Hebrew? Do you have any, you know, any idea about that RFM or Dr. Rittner? Well, according to the Book of Mormon, okay, so going from its self-explanation, they talk about the fact that they're Hebrew, so they do speak Jewish, but the Book of Mormon specifically states, Dr. Rittner, that the reason they wrote in Egyptian on the plates was because of the lack of space. In other words, they could convey much more information on the plates through writing in Egyptian than they Got could it. in Hebrew. Got it. I'm wondering if Dr. Rittner, number one, if that's true, and number two, if it's not true, if that does play into the general idea of Joseph Smith's day, that actually one glyph in Egyptian could cover an entire paragraph or even paragraphs of meaning. Right. Well, that is absolutely critical, and I did not know that he had stated that in in the Book of Mormon, uh, because that answers actually everything. So the the simple answer to your question is, yes, there was such a belief. That was the prevailing belief before Champollion made his discovery. Restate it. Restate it, just for those who didn't get it or understand. The belief was? The belief was that This is a belief that goes all the way back to uh, the Roman period. As Egyptian hieroglyphs were being forgotten because the Roman government did not accept any documents in Egyptian language. So if you did it, if you did a legal document, it had to be in Greek or Latin. If you're in Egyptian, the, the Roman government wouldn't recognize it as being legally valid. 
So that and, and that and various other features. The Romans stopped supporting Egyptian temples, so they wouldn't pay for the hieroglyphic sculptures. So then the, the the nature of the Egyptian language was lost over time. By the Byzantine period, no one really knew it any longer. So late speculators were trying to understand what these bizarre symbols were, which they no longer knew. And so what they thought they were, were symbolic explanations and late scholars, Byzantine scholars, said that if you did the drawing of an eye, that represented the all-seeing power of God who, and then you could spill out an entire paragraph from one sign. And in the 1600s, you had a scholar, Athanasius Kircher, who thought he could translate an obelisk that had been moved to Rome, and he produced pages of what this supposedly said on the basis of a handful of signs. And we now know that all it says is the king's name. But he managed to create all of this out of it because it was the assumption that each one of those little signs represented something like a paragraph. And that is absolutely critical for our understanding of what Joseph Smith did, as I was able to show in an article I produced online. And we can talk about that later. Thank you, Dr. Renner. Thank you. I did not know that. If I had known that, I would have certainly referenced it in my article, and I'm happy to know that now, because that basically is absolutely the smoking gun that shows what he was doing. Yeah, it's brilliant. And that's RFM. That's why I couldn't do this interview without you. So thank you for helping me make sense of that. Um, But I I want to to tell you now that what's extremely important to understand is that that's, that's wrong that the Egyptian script is primarily phonetic. The Egyptians have signs for single... It it is generally assumed and stated that the Phoenicians invented the alphabet. They did not. The Egyptians already had an alphabet before anyone else. The thing is, the Egyptians didn't think that was enough. They didn't like just having an alphabet. So they have signs that represent one sound, a B, a P. Then they have other signs that represent two consonants, other signs that represent three consonants, other signs that represent whole words, which is closest to the idea of, you know, this is a whole concept, but it's only a word, not a whole paragraph. And then they have other signs because that, like all Semitic languages, Egyptian doesn't write vowels. Hebrew doesn't write vowels. So they would spell something like, imagine if I were writing the word ball, I would write B-L-L. So how do you know if you're talking about Bill, the person, Bull, the animal, or Ball, the bouncy thing? And the only way you do that is you put an extra sign that gives you something that we call a determinative, that gives you the range of meaning. So if it's B-L-L and it means Bill, the personal name, you put a seated man after it. If it means bull, the animal, you draw a bull. 
And if it, and now these have no spoken value at all. So these are just extra values that give you the mental range of what it is. Uh, or ball, you do a circle. Now that's important actually for the book of Abraham because some of the signs that he read were actually determinatives, not even words. And so they actually had no spoken value at all. Got it. Uh, but we'll get back to that at another time. Okay. Well, that's what's actually going on. So the whole idea that you read the whole paragraph, absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. Got it. So that's what Champollion knew. And that's what no one in the U.S. could have known. Brilliant. Um, Okay. So, uh, so we know, so we know that, that Joseph claims to have this power to translate uh, special languages uh, the Book of Mormon, you know, he claims he can translate Egyptian. And then in 1830, I think this is important, um, in uh, in Doctrine and Covenants, what is now Doctrine and Covenants, section 21 in Mormon scripture, which I believe is a revelation given on April 6th, 1830, which all Mormons, uh, you know, should know uh, is, is the date that the church uh, was actually founded. What we have is is in Doctrine, Doctrine and Covenants section 21, um, sort of God telling Joseph Smith, uh, you know, what his, his special powers are or, you know, w- why he's called to kind of lead. And what we find is it says in D&C 21.1, Behold, there shall be a record kept among you, and in it thou shalt be called a seer, a translator, a prophet, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the church, blah, blah, blah. So it, it is super important to understand, I think, that the, one of the ways that Joseph Smith was able to get followers, to get a reputation, uh, to have people sort of be enthralled with, with him as an individual, was that he claimed special powers. It used to be the seer stone and treasure digging, but eventually it was, hey, God allows me to translate languages. And it's there in, in the founding revelation of, of the church on April 6th, 1830. Joseph is a translator, um, and and his first you know major language, or at least one of the major languages, is Egyptian. So, um, I just think that's important. So now, now as we come forward a bit um, about the about Michael Chandler, let's go ahead and jump back to that part of the story. Uh, Michael Chandler um, shows up in Kirtland. Now, this is going to be a bit of a spoiler because we're going to be getting to the ways that Joseph Smith and those who helped him got it wrong. What, what do you want to tell us about Michael Chandler coming to Kirtland and specifically what he brought? And then I want you to talk about what he was actually, what, what the things were that he was actually bringing, which again is a spoiler to this whole conversation, but I think it's important to understand up front what, what, what were the items that, that Joseph brought and what was the content of the scrolls in particular, just in general. Okay. Well, the the mummies that he were bring, that he was bringing, at least from the evidence we have from the surviving papyri, uh, the mummies themselves are lost or potentially lost. It's been argued that they were burned up in the Chicago fire. One of them may have gone to the Niagara Museum, in which case it's at the Emory Museum now. So it's a good candidate for being one of those. Uh, but these mummies are late mummies. 
They are Ptolemaic in date, probably, which means they could not be from the time of the patriarchs, although Chandler was advertising them that way because, of course, they would sell. Now, you're, you're not, you're not going to get as much money for a mummy if you say it's from the time of Ptolemy Euergetes II because who is going to know who that is, you know? Uh, but if you say it's from the time of Joseph, you've, you're, you're, you're going to get a better deal. And, Joseph, and, and Michael Chandler is a traveling salesman who is there to make money. And he's been trying to sell these things. He's charging for people to see them and then hopefully sells them off. And the papyri that are with them do, are books of the dead. They are the normal things that are wrapped up with mummies, which are their passports to eternity, basically. They are the documents that allow the deceased to get through the dangerous passageways in the underworld. Because in Egyptian religion, even if you've led a virtuous life, after death, you confront, as you move through the underworld, as your soul moves through the underworld, you have to go through gateways that are guarded by demons that challenge you to identify them. Uh, you have to know special names and powers, and you have to be provided with foodstuffs. And if you're... F to to food offerings are required... If you don't have the food offerings, magical spells will provide the equivalent of them. So the Book of the Dead includes spells to give you nourishment in case your descendants stop bringing offerings to the tomb. It's your backup. So everyone wanted these, and they're extremely expensive. They're you spend a lot of your life savings to make one of these documents. They are the, they're scribal societies that make, they're ready made in advance and then they go in and insert people's names. Um, so they're often a stock thing. It's not something that you commission to do from beginning to end, although some wealthy people might be able to do that. But this the, the Egyptians knew they would be living most of their life, they thought, uh, just like this earth, but in heaven. So you wanted everything you had in your the Egyptian religion to back up is life affirming. Paradise is primarily just this same life, but without the illness, disease or pain. So what you want is to reproduce everything as much as possible, and you can put that in book form and with, with ritual spells to make that all happen. And that's what these critical books of the dead are. Can I break in here for just a second? They're amulets is what they are. Right. Well, uh, I was struck, <clears throat> Dr. Rittner, while you were talking about the purpose of the book of the dead, because, of course, there's the book of the dead, which we know now. Uh, John Gee, notwithstanding, my apologies to him if he's listening, that this is the scroll that was used, the Book of the Dead, in order to translate into the text of the Book of Abraham. That much I've got right so far, correct? 
Well, um, if you want to be really technical, and this is super technical, uh, the the document that was used for the Book of Abraham, as I see it, and as the, the uh, woodcuts would seem to establish, is actually something called a Book of Breathing, which is a different it's a different kind of document. It's a derivative of the earlier books of the dead. Is that there the same, are, same there, text? There are books. Our Book of Dead is the second text. All right. But they're similar. Is that correct? They are. They're similar. In, in, they're precisely similar in purpose. And the Book of Breathings is just a late development, which is a replacement for the older Book of the Dead. Okay, so very one good. One develops into the other. So it's part of the same series of ritual texts and funerary prayers that's derived from concepts in the Book of the Dead. So as a, if you take Book of the Dead as a general broad category, the answer is yes. So earlier scholars would have lumped that in with the Book of the Dead. And the Book of Breathings. We now take it as a separate but it's still part of that same concept of sequence. Is that also called a sensen manuscript? Yep. And is sensen breathing? Is Egyptian word for breathing. Right. So well, it's a shot in sensen, which means the book of breathing. So when we call it the book of breathing, it's because that's what the Egyptian title is that's on those examples that actually have a label. That's the label. Okay. So having said that much, it's basically a book of the dead, but more specifically, a book of breathings. You've already described the purpose of that. And the book of Abraham is linked to the book of the dead. The book of Abraham text, at least facsimile too, is linked to the temple because a number of those figures are not actually translated, but it's just said uh, the meaning of this will be revealed in the temple. You remember those explanations, right, Dr. Rittner? Well, facsimile too is something completely different. Also. It is from it is from a different manuscript, though. Correct. And yeah, it's not actually even a manuscript. It's a different object. And we'll it's be digging into the, we'll be digging into the facsimiles in detail in a bit. I'm so sorry because here's what I'm leading toward in my clumsy way, Doctor Rittner, is Brigham Young, who is of course Joseph Smith's successor. In a famous speech, he gave a definition of the temple ritual, the Mormon temple ritual which we call the endowment. And this is what he said the purpose of the endowment was. And anybody who's been through the temple to receive their endowment will recognize that this is an accurate description of what goes on there. But the reason that struck me is because it sounded so similar to what you were saying is inscribed on the Book of the Dead. Here it is. Ready? One paragraph. Your endowment, this is Brigham Young speaking, your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you. After you have departed this life, to enable you to walk back to the presence of the Father. Now, here's the, here's the interesting part. Walk back to the presence of the Father, passing the angels who stand as sentinels, being enabled to give them the key words, the signs, and tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood, and gain your eternal exaltation in spite of earth and hell. Period. End of quote from Brigham Young. Does that sound at all like what's on the Book of the Dead? Because it kind of sounded similar to me. What's your take on that, Doctor Rittner? Well, you're you're asking me to speculate uh, on things that are outside my specific area of competence. But having said that, yes, <laughs> if you if you simply look at 
now this is papyrus number the number two, <laughs> the Tashir Min text. The where you have there is a series of vignettes, and vignette is just a fancy French word for picture. Uh, pictures that that illustrate many of these spells, which show the gateways and show the demon forces, including the snake walking on human legs which was of interest to the scribes of Smith because they copied it in the Curtain Papers several times in those manuscripts. Uh, and it's, it's referred to elsewhere. Uh, that's, not, that's another story. But, but they, there, there are guardian figures in there which are in, and gates which are immediately recognizable even to the modern eye as a gate and an angelic slash demonic guardian next to it and the standing figure of the, the tomb owner talking to the person. So, you know, I can look at that picture and, and, and you know, I can hand that to a third year, you know, a third grader and say what's going on there. And they can say it's a person having a conversation with some weird spirit at a gateway. This would be immediately recognizable to anyone of any intelligence level, whether modern or ancient. You wouldn't need to read the texts or even know anything about the manuscript to know that much. Does well, that answer your question? Well, it opens it up to me the way what I told you about the Book of Mormon opened it up to you because if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, the endowment ceremony itself, at least this part about, which is the important part, it's the, the pinnacle moment in the endowment ceremony where you have to give keywords and tokens and passwords to an angel who's standing as a sentinel for you to enter into a representation of heaven in the temple, the celestial room. Um, what, if I'm understanding you correctly, then maybe that actually could have been derived just from the iconography or the pictures on the papyrus that Joseph Smith had in his possession. Is that what you're saying? Well, obviously, I have no idea what was going on in Brigham Young's mind, but yes, I think I think that's entirely possible. And and li viewers and listeners will be able to get a better sense of this uh, when we actually talk about the facsimiles. We can actually look at these images, and uh, and um, and then people will have a visual sense of what we're talking about as well. If I thought this was a foundational document, and that it represented insights into heaven which is what the Egyptians intended to be anyway. And I had it in my possession, or I had looked at it, and I was told that this is, this is where revelation would come from, then those observations are exactly what I would pull from it. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a, that, that would be a reasonable prophetic use of this document. Well, the reason I'm excited about this, I'm going to duck into the background here in a second, John, don't worry about it. But I think that actually we are making some, we're doing some groundbreaking stuff here and getting new and additional insights into maybe how it was that the temple endowment was created by Joseph Smith with, with a lot of help from the Masons, of course. But, uh, but uh, anyway, I'll duck out and. Yeah, go I was going to, I was, my thought when you were asking RFM was, and I don't want you to duck out. Um, I just want to make sure we don't cover things twice. Um, but, but, uh, my 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 wondering was that if if in some way the there was Egyptian influence in the Masonic ceremony that then would have then filtered into the Mormon temple ceremony and I I'm just totally speculating. I don't well, know there, there there is a great deal of Masonic influence in terms of iconography 
because the Masons picked up on the Egyptomania of the Napoleonic era and um, Masonic temples to this day are wonderful repositories of Egyptian uh, ideas. And I, here I should make a personal remark. My ancestor was governor of Pennsylvania on the anti-Masonic party, which is no longer with us. But Governor Joseph Ridner, before the, just before the Civil War, um, was a, I, I don't even know what his religious beliefs were. I assume he's was Catholic because they were the anti-Masonic people. But I have toured the uh, Masonic uh, Lodge in Philadelphia, which is one of the most wonderful recreations of ancient Egyptian temple space I've ever seen. And I highly recommend it to anyone who wants to see what Egyptian designs look like. Um, I'm not anti-Masonic. I'm not a Mason. But uh, I noticed when I was there, they, were, they had a card file on Masons, and I'm flipping through, and it said Joseph Rittner, not a Mason, in bold letters. So I was visiting under a different name. That's cool. uh, Apparently, they haven't forgotten my ancestor, so I'm sorry. <laughs> so there is there is certainly a Masonic possibility. Excellent. So yeah, if if e Egyptian apparently we Masonic. just don't do well with other religions, since uh, I come from a family of debunkers. Right. Well, there's you know every, everything's remix. You know, we just have multi generational influences, and it's certainly very possible that Egyptian, you know, uh, relics or writings or, or fables or stories influenced the Masonic ceremony, which then influences the Well, it's, it's questionable, but, but it's, again, it's a good foundational myth. The Rosicrucians want to be ancient Egyptians as well. So there are multiple societies that claim to have a basis in surviving ancient Egyptian rituals and motifs. And that's also true of the mummy movies, because, of course, the, the mummy is being kept alive by the secret group of ancient Egyptian priests who are still with us, supposedly. Well, you'd be hard-pressed to find one. I'd like to meet one. Excellent. The great point, RFM. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, it, it, so you, you've established that these, you know, these scrolls are, are books or artifacts that are commonly in this time period buried with mummies because they're going to be used in some way uh, in their afterlife. Is that an okay exactly. summation? It, it is a primary gift for them for their afterlife. Okay. So, um, so I think it bears mentioning something really important and that's the dates. So Dr. Rittner, if we had to estimate an approximate year or era when Abraham would have lived and I have to even state that even, you know, even Jewish scholars will admit that there's a big question mark as to whether, you know, characters, Adam and Eve and, and Abraham and Moses even really existed. And we talk about this in our David Bakavoy interview. So one problem you have with the book of Abraham is Abraham may not have ever existed. But then a second really big problem you have with the book of Abraham is the dates. So Dr. Ritter, what's your understanding of when Abraham might have lived if he had ever lived? 
Well, since we have no historical records outside of the Bible for his existence, that becomes a problem. And so then the question is, where do you, where do you locate the time period that would be likely for people moving from Canaan into Egypt? And there have been a couple of different suggestions. Uh, I personally favor the, the explanation that was provided by the Egyptians themselves which is the Egyptian historian Manetho, who was writing in the Ptolemaic period. In other words, roughly the same time as these papyri were being made. And he explained the uh, biblical stories because he knew them. He was a historian writing for the Library of Alexandria. He was writing the history of Egypt. And so he had to deal with the Exodus and he claimed that these Exodus stories were linked to the invasion of Egypt by the Hyksos, which was in what we now call the second intermediate period. And we're talking roughly around 1700 BC. Okay. So the number I had and that RFM just texted me was 2000 BCE. You're putting it around 1700. So a couple millennia. And I, I think we've already established that you date these papyri to around 100 BCE. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> so it's yeah. pretty it's pretty hard to even make the claim that 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 Abraham that these papyri were written by the very hand of Abraham when when they were actually written somewhere between 1600 and 9 when they date to 16 to 1900 years after Abraham would have lived if Abraham had ever lived that, at all. That is so certainly true that even the apologists recognize that and that's why they've had to say well Okay, the original was written, but this is a this is a copy. Okay, but there is so, there is not a chance whatsoever that that text could, the that lang that script it's written in did not even exist at the time of the Hyksos. They didn't even have those shapes of squiggles. So we can be one hundred percent certain that it could not under any circumstances have been written at the time of whenever you want to make Abraham, assuming you want to make an Abraham at all. The other because the language, the language hadn't evolved yet to where it had evolved by one. The language or the script. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or this manuscript, it, which didn't exist till much later, because as I said, it's a late derivation of the book of the dead. All these things say late, 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 late. I mean, there is no wiggle room, zero, none, not any, not even a, fi a tiny, a tiny iota, impossible. Uh, and even if you play with uh, Abraham and say, no, he was instead under the beginning of the new kingdom, which is where he's also been put, uh, then you're only moving it to 1300. BC, which you're still to your thousand years away, more than a thousand years away. So under any scenario, no matter how weird you want to make it and no matter how desperate, and I use that word with intent, you, you, you make your argumentations, it can never be anything more than absolutely ridiculous. I hope I made that clear. 
<laughs> yeah, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> if, um, you are, if you are hallucinating and absolutely mentally insane. I'll try not to take that personally. But just the, uh, this is actually not a challenge to what you're saying, but just to clarify what it is you're already talking about is that in the history of the church, it talks about the book of Abraham, and this language is in the heading at the beginning of the book of Abraham in the LDS scriptures, where it describes it as the writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt, called the book of Abraham, written by his own hand upon papyrus. That's how it's described, that it's written by his own hand, and that's the difficulty that apologists have to try and work their way around with that particular issue. And I'm showing that introduction uh, of the 18 of the 1981 edition of the Book of Abraham, um, uh, and uh, and yeah, we'll come back to this as well. But that's that's a super that's a super important point. Um, well, there's also a point in the slide you just quickly showed because there's a change from the what the Book of Abraham actually said to what the 2013 description says. Did you, you will notice it's gone from a translation to an inspired translation, and that is a very big difference. Right, yeah, and we'll totally come back to that and the uh, the apologetic arguments uh, around and, and, the but I, theory. As I remember looking at the manuscript, the word inspired is not there. Yeah. Just while while we're on the while we're on the topic of timeline RFM, if you'll just jump in on this question, as I understand some of the some of the content in, in the actual book of Abraham, and again we'll come back to this, but Abraham's talking about things clearly from Genesis, and even Genesis hadn't hadn't been written, uh, you know, back in 2000 BCE. Is that right, RFM? No, that's an interesting point. If you're going to go with the historical figure with with the question mark next to it of Abraham living at 1800 to 2000 BC and writing in chapter two. And I think uh, four and five of Abraham about Genesis material, I think typically David Bakavoy would back me up that scholars generally agree that that was probably written maybe around 600 BCE. So yeah, that would have been a long time after Abraham lived for him to be writing the book of Genesis, which had not been written yet and probably wouldn't be for another thousand years. It's kind of like writing Harry Potter fan fiction before J.K. Rowling releases Harry Potter. Yes, but of course you've got to understand that according to the basic fundamentalist worldview that Joseph Smith had, it was Moses who wrote Genesis, and therefore Abraham coming after Moses would be able to reference it chronologically. It's only when uh, studies have developed to the point that they have now that we can see that that doesn't really make sense on a, a regular timeline. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, the same argument is applicable to the book of Exodus and for phrases and terms that are in the book of Abraham, specifically the, the name Potiphar, which comes out of the book of Exodus and is in the Joseph story. You have in the book of Abraham a reference to the so-called hill of Potiphar. Potiphar is an Egyptian name that is only occurring in the later period post-New Kingdom. What, what year is that, post-New Kingdom? 800s, 600s, somewhere in there, 700s. So Abraham so, shouldn't be in using other that words, word. What I'm, what I'm telling you now is that scholars have to date the book of Exodus 
it had to have been composed no earlier than 700 BC because it has anachronisms in there that couldn't have existed. No Egyptian would have been named Potiphar before the, what we call the Libyan period in Egypt, which is one of my periods of specialization, the Berber period in Egyptian. Uh, Potiphar is Padipara, the one whom Pare has given, and that has a grammatical construction that wasn't possible and wasn't used as a personal name until around 700 BC. And so it's a distinctly Egyptian name. It's in a distinctly Egyptian place, and it's grammatically only possible at this time period, like the script, which means there is not a chance, same level of absolutely wrong, that the book of Exodus can date from a patriarch who lived at the time it claims. Got it. And just to put a fine point on this, Dr. Ritter, your reference... So what I'm saying, I'm just, I've just said fundamentalism is possible. Right, and I just wanted to make sure it's clear to the audience that you're referencing Abraham chapter 1, verse 20, where it says, Behold, Potiphar's hill was in the land of Ur of Chaldea. And if I'm understanding that's, you correctly... That's correct, also absurd, because, for another reason, and that's... Uh, there is not, if Potiphar is out of time anachronistically, putting an Egyptian name in Ur of the Chaldees is absurd geographically because there is no way there would have been such a thing wherever you put Ur of the Chaldees. And my colleague, who is now my director of my institute, a senior Sumerian scholar, did a chapter in my volume because I asked him to, to discuss Ur of the Chaldees. There are two Urs that are possible. Uh, one is in Mesopotamia and the other is near Haran. But in neither place would an Egyptian place name be there. And under no circumstances, I want to emphasize that with as many exclamation points as I could possibly do. Never would you have an Egyptian priest functioning there doing sacrificial rites in Ur, wherever you put Ur. Never would happen. And the Egyptians didn't do human sacrifice anyway, and the picture isn't of a sacrifice. So everything about that, as we will eventually get to, is just a fantasy built on a fantasy, built on a misunderstanding, built on ignorance, built on not understanding anything whatsoever. Nothing. Built on a misunderstood and wrongly reconstructed drawing on a torn papyrus, which they didn't understand how to restore. So the drawing is ultimately a fabrication, and everything spun off of it is a lie on a lie on, a, on ignorance. Hmm. I hope that was clear. <laughs> it was. Can I pursue this just a, just a little bit further, John, since Please. we're here on this issue of Ur? Um, it's my understanding, having been involved in the Book of Abraham Apologetics for some time and reading a lot of stuff that was written, including by Hugh Nibley as well as John Gee, two proposals for Ur, and there's one that's way south, and then there's one that's much further north, the one that you mentioned as being 
near Haran. And it seems to me that John Gee and other Mormon apologists are really trying hard to favor the northernmost Ur, specifically because at or around the time of Abraham, when Egyptian the Egyptian empire had its widest influence, it actually extended up and east toward that area so they can try and justify the book of Abraham talking about there being this Egyptian presence, an Egyptian priest in Ur of the Chaldees, going with the northern Ur at that specific time period. Is that your understanding of their argument, and do they have a good argument there? It is my understanding of their argument, and it's ridiculous. Uh, at the height of Egyptian political control, under the native pharaohs, Egypt never controlled beyond the Orontes River, uh, which is to say you are basically south of modern Antakya, ancient Antioch, which was in Syria, but it's now politically in Turkey. Uh, Haran is higher up, way north of that and out of that territory. They, they never got there. Okay, so even, uh, even, even under the Ptolemaic army, where Egyptian control was a little broader, it never had Haran. So even, at no time, at no time did the Egyptian state control Haran. So no matter where you put Ur, either north or south, then according to my, yeah, the book, the book of Abraham would be incorrect about well talking about Cleveland. <laughs> so the book of the, Abraham the, would be wrong about the that, likelihood that of an Egyptian priest conducting a ritual in Haran is the same as an Egyptian priest conducting it in Cleveland. So. Um, so for those who are listening, uh, and, you know, we've, we've basically said, you know, the problems, some of the core problems of the book of Abraham, Abraham may not have existed. If he existed, he existed, oh, you know, 1700 to 1900 years before this would have been written. I even wonder whether, was he a sheep herder? Like, I don't know what his occupation was, but could he have traveled to Egypt and learned Egyptian and then written it in the short period of time he was in Egypt? Like, what's the chances of that happening, Dr. Rittner? Well, the Hyksos period that I mentioned, there were large Canaanite populations who had moved into Egypt. And we now know from studies of dentition and uh, the DNA that we're actually getting from bodies in the delta, which is to say the northeastern section of Egypt, that there was a large-scale migration in this period of people out of Canaan into Egypt. They settled there. They brought with them their Canaanite ways. Uh, so, yes, there were populations that were moving into Egypt during periods of famine. And they were settling there, and to a certain extent, they were Egyptianizing. And they would have learned how to speak Egyptian. Whether, I think it's highly doubtful, they would have learned how to write Egyptian, because even the Egyptians rarely wrote Egyptian. 
reading and writing required intensive schooling in an Egyptian temple. 99% of the population, as we currently guess, couldn't read and write. We currently assume only 1% of the population could read and write. And certainly not Abraham showing up in Egypt from a foreign country. Fast, no shepherd is going to write uh, at all. That's not possible. Uh, hmm. Unless you are a member of an elite ranking family, upper middle class at the minimum, you couldn't write. And you had to be trained in a priestly school, which means you had to be apprenticed into the temple. Right. Shepherds aren't apprenticed into the temple. And if, and if this evidence, evidence isn't enough for you to, to start to wonder about the book of Abraham, dear listeners and viewers, if I'm reading from the church's own book of Abraham essay, which we're going to go to in depth later, I'm reading directly from it. Quote, these fragments date between the third century BCE and the first century um, BCE long after Abraham lived. That's the church's own uh, acknowledgement now. And even a more devastating blow and Dr. Rittner, I want you to confirm this. Uh, and this might, you know, be one of the most devastating blows of all. The church's own book of Abraham essay says, none of the characters on the papyrus fragments mentioned Abraham's name or any of the events recorded in the book of Abraham. Mormon and non-Mormon Egyptologists agree that the characters on the fragments do not match the translation given in the book of Abraham. So, I mean, if, if you wanted sort of like the most obvious hit you over the head acknowledgement, the church itself is basically saying that the content, the substance of these papyra um, never mention the word Abraham anywhere and don't have anything to do with Abraham or anything written that Joseph claimed to have translated into the book of Abraham. Dr. Rittner, do you confirm that? Absolutely. This was something that was recognized already in the 60s as soon as the papyri were rediscovered. Uh, and placed in front of Aziz Astia at the Metropolitan uh, and then given over to the church. Uh, immediately, Hugh Nibley began to recognize that from his work that he did then subsequently with Klaus Baer, he knew that what this text actually said and that it did not say anything of the sort, which led to a variety of explanations as to why not. Uh, you know, where was the text? Was this the text? Is translation the right word? Splitting hairs over the word translation, trying to explain where the missing manuscript was, try to account for why it says the illustration is right next to the text, except there was supposed to be a missing manuscript that would then be in between, but it can't possibly be there, so that doesn't make any sense either. But we'll try this explanation, that explanation, some other explanation, and all of it is grappling with the simple fact that we have the text, which is precisely the same as the illustration. The text, the text translations by Smith references that illustration as being the document. We now have the document we can read, which, he, which no one could at the time he owned it. Uh, we can now read every single jot and squiggle on there, every single word, and Abraham is nowhere there. Uh, and in fact, there is nothing on there that, you know, the only thing that might dovetail with that text is the word the. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh. I, can, I can find the word V. <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful. Uh, it, it's just funny. Um, thank you. Well, this has been fantastic so far, Dr. Rittner and RFM. Uh, I think it's been really interesting to sort of set the context for, uh, you know, our, our deeper discussion of the Book of Abraham. And to be honest, it seems like what we've already shown, which which concludes with the church admitting that the papyrus has nothing whatever to do with Abraham at all, uh, probably should be the end of the story, should be the end of the discussion. It's like, none of this happened, the Book of Abraham was made up, and end of story. But interestingly, that's not how Mormon history went. Instead, we have this incredible history of the church trying to explain away, well, we, we have the issue of these documents being destroyed, we have the issue of, or, or allegedly destroyed and then refound. We have the issue of Egyptologists over many time periods debunking the Book of Abraham. And then we have the resurgence of, of some of these documents in the 1960s. And then just decades of apologetic acrobatics trying to save the Book of Abraham uh, from being something that sort of torpedoes Joseph Smith and with it the entire restoration. And so even though logic says case closed already, uh, it's, it's super important that we go a lot deeper and really talk about in depth the problems with the book of Abraham and most importantly, the problems with the church's uh, apologetics. And I think that's something, Dr. Ridner, that you feel very passionately about because uh, while I don't think you care what people believe in terms of religious beliefs, I think you have a lot of respect for people's religious beliefs, I think you really take issue with shoddy scholarship or dishonest scholarship or unethical or misleading scholarship. Is that fair to say, Dr. Rittner? Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, I, I, it's not my business to debunk people's religion. That's not why I was involved with this. I was asked to read a papyrus, and I read a papyrus. My concern is that if you're going to discuss this document, you discuss the document accurately. And that's where I feel I have a role to play, is that I can tell you what it says. And when there are contortions that are made to try to make it say something else, then my scholarly sense is offended. I love it. And because we're kind of starting maybe a bit of a new section of this interview, I'm just going to mention... As, as we want to in every section, and this will come out of left field for someone just joining us, it is really important that we note that Dr. Rittner, aside from his love for Egyptology and truthful scholarship, we are taking advantage of this historic moment of him coming on Mormon Stories and Radio Free Mormon to also provide our listeners with the opportunity to do something very historic and uh, altruistic, which is that Dr. Ridner is facing kidney failure. He is in need of a living donor to secure his life and continued research. And we're inviting any and all of our listeners to spread the word. If you can help, please contact Dr. Dana McLean, Northwestern Medicine Transplant Coordinator at 312-695-0828. Living donors save lives. I'm just going to mention that multiple times during this episode. Thanks to anyone who heeds this call or spreads the word so that we can uh, help save Dr. Rittner's life and prolong it so that he can do as much research as possible. So I just have to throw that in. Okay, so with that, what I want to do now, 
So we, we, in our chronology, Dr. Rittner, Michael Chandler comes to Kirtland in 1835. He's saying he's, he's already tying, you know, the old Testament and, and Moses and Abraham and Joseph to these papyri. Joseph says, let's buy them. I think he buys two, two mummies and two scrolls. Is that right? Dr. Rittner? Uh, I think so. I have to go back and refresh my RFM. Memory. Is that right? Two, two mummies and two scrolls. I think two mummies, four scrolls, but you got some mummies and some scrolls. We okay, have, some mummies. We have certainly four documents, so yes. Okay. And so Joseph gets those, and d- doesn't he immediately pronounce what they are, RFM? Is that right? Uh, I don't know if it's immediately, but I think it's soon after, if not immediately, that indeed the writings on these scrolls are writings of Abraham and also of Joseph. Yeah, he basically says, as I remember in my, my studies, it's a scroll, a scroll of Abraham and a scroll of Joseph. Does that sound right? Yes, but he only, to our knowledge, got at least partway through his translation, which is what he called it, uh, of the book of Abraham. And nobody knows, seems to know, that if he ever got anywhere with the book of Joseph. Right. My assumption is that the book of Joseph is the story of Katumin that never was finished. And we can look at that in a minute. That'll be great. And and we also should note, uh, referencing our our recent interview on the Joseph Smith translation, that he had already started the Book of Moses, right? Right, RFM, with his uh, attempt to retranslate a more inspired version of the Holy Bible. Is that right? Right. Yes, he started that in June of 1830. So he couldn't, you know, he couldn't very well name one of the scrolls Moses because he had already, Moses had already been taken in a previous translation exercise. <laughs> well, that's true because you're, you're dealing with a limited number of patriarchs and Bible personalities who already have a pre-established connection with Egypt and therefore who logically, at least in Joseph Smith's mind, would have writings represented on scrolls found in Egypt with Egyptian mummies. Right. Okay, so he gets these scrolls, and he begins a translation uh, process. I don't, uh, we want to come back to this, um, because, you know, at the time, the church members were, you know, dealing with this stuff. Uh, They didn't know anything about the details, and we kind of want to reveal this chronologically as the public was made aware. So uh, without digging into the Kirtland Egyptian papers and and all those things, Dr. Ridner RFM, is there anything we want to do to set the listeners up for just understanding what was produced, when it was produced? I know that it was important to at least uh, Brian Hoglid to note that part of the Book of Abraham w- was sort of, t- quote, translated in 1835, and then part of it was translated later in the Nauvoo time period. Is that right, RFM? Right, 1835, which is up through Abraham chapter 2, verse 18, and the balance being translated in early 1842 in Nauvoo, and then it was printed in the church newspaper starting, I think, in March of 1842. And then eventually it gets incorporated into Mormon scripture, right? Right, I think that was around 1860 or so. Yeah, so a couple decades later, it's it's actually brought into the canon along with uh, the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, etc. Right? Right. Okay. So let's actually begin with facsimile one, because I think that's a really uh, reasonable and fun place uh, to begin. Now, I know that most of my, uh, the consumers of our podcasts uh, 
you know, only, only consume this in audio form. But having said that in RFM, I know your podcast isn't yet on YouTube or Facebook, but, but we are providing visuals because we think it's going to help. Hopefully those of you who, to, who are tuning in via audio will still be able to understand this conversation. But if you really want to get the most from it, you'll want to switch to YouTube or Facebook where we're actually uh, providing a video. And so with that, what I'm going to put on the screen is a facsimile one, which is what, you know, one of the first things that was produced. And uh, Dr. Rittner, take it away as you want to take us through what was produced, but then go back and talk to about what the origin texts actually were and what they said. Well, what you're looking at as, as copied shows you a, well, let's see, let's, where to start. Uh, the prominent feature is a bed. I think you can all recognize it's a bed. It's in the shape of a lion. You can see a lion's head on the right-hand side. It has lion's feet and a lion's tail coming out on the far left-hand side. There is a body lying on that with his legs up in the air, and he's shown with two hands held up in front of his face. And the reason why they are presumably there is because there is a dark figure standing above him. The body is dark, though weirdly the head is white. Not It doesn't match. Uh, and the, that figure has one arm holding a knife so that the body on the bed would appear to be warding off the blow of an attack. Above the body's head is a floating bird, a flying bird. Below the bed, there are four jugs with different heads, a human head, a... Uh, that should be a baboon head, a jackal head, and a hawk head. Those are correctly done. And at the head end of the bed, there is an altar with flowers and wine jugs next to it. Below the line of all of that, as a baseline, there's a zigzag of water with a crocodile shown. And at the base of all of that is a series of what would look to modernize like just a series of rectangles with little rectangles inside of them, which is known as the uh, niched bricking motif as a standard feature of Egyptian design that goes all the way back to the most archaic period and is from interconnections between Egypt and Sumer as a part of brick architecture, which is just used as a baseline design in Egyptian art. And if it hasn't already occurred to the listeners, feel free to, if you don't have the YouTube video available, feel free to pull out your own standard works and, and turn to the Book of Abraham and the facsimiles that are there. RFM, if you want to tell them where to go, I think they probably know, right? 
I assume that they do, but I will let them know that that's not going to really do the whole trick because starting with the next slide, you're going to see things you're not going to find in your scriptures and you would never know about if you only went by the scriptures. And RFM, tell us just in a, like in a one sentence, what, what is basically Joseph Smith claiming that, that, that this, is, this image is? Well, what this image is, is the According crisis, to Joseph. According right, to Joseph. It's the crisis point of the entirety of chapter one of the book of Abraham, when Abraham is being sacrificed by the priest of Elkanah, who is uh, going to sacrifice him. And Abraham cries to the Lord for deliverance, and the angel of the Lord represented in figure one comes down and delivers him at this moment and smites the altar, smites the priest, and Abraham is able to make a getaway and continue his journeys on. So that's Abraham on the bed about to be sacrificed. Right, and those four canopic jars below him, he identifies as four idolatrous gods. He identifies the crocodile as the god of Pharaoh. And then that's about everything that I probably should say here. And the bird? The bird, that's the angel of the Lord coming down to save him okay. when he cries right. for help. Okay, all right. So back to you, Dr. Rittner. Let's, let's go back to the source text, shall we? All right. So for those of you who can see the, the image, here is what actually survives. This is the real papyrus. This is the papyrus that Joseph Smith owned, which then passed from his family, ultimately to a household servant, and, and then on to the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And it we know this is the original papyrus because it is glued onto a backing which has plot numbers for Mormon home allotments from, I think it's Kirtland that's on the back side. Um, and you can see, for those again who can, that the body is in fact damaged. When Smith bought it, it was not there. The papyrus was already damaged. And so someone has drawn in the connecting pencil lines to make the, corp the, the, the main body and, most importantly, both of those hands. The, the arms connecting to what, he, what look like two hands there that are survive on the fragment of papyrus. Basically the head of the guy with the knife and the knife, right? The, the knife and the head of the dark figure. Is drawn, the guy standing up, that's drawn in. And then on, on supposedly Abraham lying down, what's drawn in? So what's important to notice is there is no knife that is preserved in this. So we don't actually know from the survival. You cannot say that this figure originally held a knife. There is no proof for that. Oh, I thought it, it looked like in his right hand he had a dagger or something, but I, I see what you're saying, yeah. Uh, and we don't know what his head actually looked like from this, if we only had this papyrus, because there is no head there, and there was no head there for Joseph Smith because it's torn and we see them drawing it back to complete the image. 
and they have drawn it in a different way than they would ultimately put it in the woodcut. So they couldn't make up their mind initially how they wanted it, because if you can see the picture, you see the man's face is full face looking at you, the one with the dark body. But eventually they made it profile like the figure on the bed. So again, proof that there was no actual one that they could copy from. They were having to make up what was broken. And this is the best they could do. The problem is what they inserted is wrong. There was never a knife there. There was never a human head there. And there is a reason why the skin of the figure on the left is dark. And it's not because he's a dark Egyptian or a Nubian. It's because he's a jackal because he's the Egyptian god Anubis, who has a dog head and is a furry dog, and the black represents the color of his hair. And we'll, we'll jump to that photo in a sec, but, and it's also important to note that, that there's two arms that are drawn in, right? And, there are and two that will arms, come in. and that, there actually is probably only one arm. Right, and that, that's of Abraham lying will, down for the I people not I will be able to explain that with parallels. The problem for understanding this in the way that Joseph Smith interpreted is this is a fairly common scene. This is not, this scene of Anubis, to give the name to the god on the left with the jackal body, with the god Osiris on the bed, which always has the form of a lion. This is the funerary bed. It is never never, never an altar. You do not sacrifice anything on it. This is where the dead rest in peace and receive blessings, not sacrifice. You would never kill anyone on such a thing. And the pots underneath the bed hold the internal organs that are used in mummification because when you dry out the body to mummify and preserve it, you remove the lungs, liver, stomach, and intestines because these rot quickly. And so they are removed from the body. The heart, by the way, is left inside. Everything else is, those other arguments are taken out. They are embalmed separately and they are put in the canopic jars. This is so well known that if you look at the Brendan Fraser mummy movie of recent date, they talk about the canopic jars there. And in that movie, strangely enough, they make five of them, but there are only four. There are always only four. There are always four in the papyri, and Joseph Smith's artists got it right because, we have, because they copied the papyrus, which had it right. There are only okay. four. So if we go to the next image now, tell us what, what we're seeing in this image. This is a reconstruction of what it would actually have looked like. So on the left so, is the original, is the facsimile one as we've already shown and as was released in the Book of Abraham, right? Yes. And, and on the right-hand side. Here is a proper reconstruction where we can actually see Anubis's head. And it's a jackal, not a human. Head, and it's a jackal. 
You will notice his arm is extended. It does not have a knife. And you will notice that what is above him is actually a bird's wing that is extended off to the right-hand side above his one hand raised, not two. His other hand is attached to his penis. He's holding an erect penis. Because what you are actually seeing is an X-rated scene of Osiris rising from the dead and impregnating his wife, the goddess Isis, who has taken the form of a, of a, a kite, a bird. And she is thus engendering her son, the god Horus, who will avenge his father who, kill, who was slain by the god Seth. This is all a critical moment in Egyptian mythology. In Egyptian mythology, every person who dies wants to be revived like Osiris was revived uh, by the god Anubis, the god of embalming. And so the figure of Osiris on the embalming bed, who is receiving blessing and embalming from Anubis, protecting him, not killing him, protecting him. Uh, this is enabling not only Osiris, but you, after death, become a form of Osiris. And so you, too, will revive and be alive in the underworld, just like Osiris was, which is why the surrounding hieroglyphic text has nothing to do with Abraham. It is entirely about a man by the name of Hor, a priest, whose funerary papyrus this was, and it belonged to his mummy, which was one of those mummies. And this contains funerary blessings for him, asking that he be revived like Osiris in the picture. And that it, it contains an invocation to the gods of the north, south, east, and west, that they induct Horus like Osiris into the underworld safely as shown in the picture with Anubis embalming Osiris, who equals Horus. And this is the moment where, oh, this is not what you typically find in most of the Book of the Dead papyri. This is a much more specialized, arcane ritual scene in which Osiris is shown impregnating his, his wife which you otherwise find on temple walls, which I'll be able to show you in a moment. We get scenes just like this. But for funerary scenes, typical scenes of Anubis, if we go to the next slide, I can show you a parallel example. Well, actually, just, and, just, and just to reiterate something you probably already said, where you can, you can notice that where, where Joseph Smith describes would have drawn the right hand of I guess it's Abraham lying down. What 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 it's more likely is that that was the left wing of the bird, not the right hand of Abraham. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, absolutely correct. Okay, so they got that second arm wrong. And of course and, they got and, the... And we have also, as we shall see when we get to the other, some real Egyptian examples, uh, there are typically 
falcons representing the goddesses Isis and Nephthys that are at the head and foot end of the lion bed. And the head end bird, Nephthys, is what is interpreted by Joseph Smith as the spirit of the Lord. Okay, so now going to the second image that we, we got from Mormon. be able to show you an example. Oh, per- Sorry about that. Perfect. So, so now turning to this wonderful graphic presented by mormoninfographics.com, what we have is facsimile one with, with all the different items in, in facsimile one numbered. And then we've got on the left hand side, on the right hand side, a modern Egyptological interpretation. And on the left hand side, what Joseph Smith's uh, interpretation was. And I don't even know if this, you were the original source of these interpretations, but I think it would be interesting to just kind of go through, I don't know, the first five or six or 10 or even all of them. And I'll tell you what, what Joseph said it was. And then again, you tell us what it really is. Is that okay? Happy to do so. So starting with number one, it's the, it's the bird in the top right. Joseph Smith calls that the angel of the Lord. Did he get that right? Well, as I just said a moment ago, that is probably the goddess Nephthys at the head of the lion bed. Okay. The god. This is the sister. This is actually the sister of Osiris, who, together with the goddess Isis, mourned the dead Osiris. And like Mary Magdalene at the resurrection of Jesus, she is present at the resurrection of Osiris. So she is regularly figured as being there. That's okay. who that goddess is. And she and Isis both take bird form. Okay. So she's number, bird number one. Now it says in the modern Egyptological interpretation, the spirit of Ba or Hor. Uh, that could be another interpretation. Okay. And it might be his, his, the Egyptians have multiple spirits, including the Ka, the Ba, et cetera. The Ba is a bird headed spirit. And that is another possibility. Okay. Um, I'm going to show you a picture where it might well be the uh, the goddess Nephthys, but we do have images where it's the Ba spirit hovering over the corpse. Okay. Number two is the figure lying down on on what Joseph would call the altar. Let me, let me just it, one. Let me just intrude one thing. Please. If it's actually the Ba, it should have a human head. So that's wrong. You're saying this this. It, the fact that probably it has wrong. a fully bird head suggests to me it's more likely the goddess Nephthys. Okay, so that was some other Egyptologist that would have made that interpretation. So the figure I lying would, down... I would mention here, I'm sorry, just jumping it in. It might even have been me because I might have thought it was the bod at an earlier age. I'm just thinking off the top of my head now. Okay, I see right. The, but as it is a bird's head, it's more likely to be Nephthys. And the parallel that I'll show you in a moment has a bird. So. Okay. RFM. Just jumping in. The place where the bird head is... The exact head is missing. In there's a lacuna there in the original, and so that has been drawn in as well as the the hands okay. and okay. the head of the. So, okay, well then that then we don't know. Got it. Thank you, RFM. Okay, the second figure is Abraham fastened upon the altar, according to Joseph Smith. So that's the figure lying down on the altar. That's Abraham about to be killed. What is that actually from an Egyptologist perspective? It's actually the god Osiris. And it equals, who is also equivalent to the priest Horus, Hor. But it's okay. the god, it's the dead Osiris reviving. 
Okay, it's Osiris, he but but it's intended. The act of reviving, which is which is demonstrated by his raising of his one hand to his face. That is the signal in Egyptian of of waking up and and scratching your face. So that is a gesture of just waking up, and I'll be able to show you that in parallels as well. But it's Osiris. His other, hand, his other hand isn't there because, as I will show you in parallel, his other hand would be on his erect penis. Okay. And and it's Osiris, but it's also symbolizing the pers- the mummy who's in tr- you know in tune, yes. who is which the is horror. Yes, horror. Okay. So that's got that wrong. This papyrus. That's the man whose name is actually on it. Right. Okay. So it's over over two. The third, uh, the third figure is the is the dark figure uh, with the knife uh, stabbing. Uh, you know, the about to stab the person on on the altar. Joseph Smith says that's uh, the idolatrous priest of Elkanah. Well, it's the god Anubis whose head has incorrectly drawn as a human head. It's also, as you can see, the wrong color because he's a jackal, and so his entire body is covered with black hair, not just the body. So they didn't understand that it's an animal god. So it's not, A, it's not a priest, it's a, it's a god, and the god is, has an animal head, and the head would be dark, and he would never have a knife, because what Anubis does is to minister spells and unguents and ointments onto the body, and he certainly wouldn't be holding a knife to attack it. Okay. So it's restored incorrectly in the hand, the head, the color of the head, the the nature of the creature, he and what he is doing. So in other words, there is nothing correct about that statement. Okay. On all points. Okay, um, over three. For the altar uh, that, that uh, according to Joseph, uh, Abraham's lying down on, uh, he calls that altar the altar for sacrifice by the idolatrous priests standing before the gods Elkanah, Libna, Machmarachna, Korash, and Pharaoh. Uh, what, what do you say that altar is? That altar is a lion bed, which is attested in Egyptian surviving uh, monumental sculpture and even wooden sculpture from Dynasty Three, from the time of King Djoser, the Step Pyramid at Saqqara. We even have an example of this from King Tutankhamun's burial with a lion bed. This is one of the funerary beds which is used to elevate the symbolically the corpse into the sky. The Egyptians believed the, the horizon god was the god Aker, who had two lion heads. The bedstead head, there would be actually one on each side, two lions so that when you put the corpse in on the bed, you are actually putting him on the body of the lion goddess, two double-headed lion goddess who represents the sky. 
So this is part of the procedure in the mummification where you are symbolically raising the dead body into heaven by putting him on a representation of the horizon sky goddess, or God, rather here, Gok Aker. Uh, and so this is not a thing of evil or death in a negative way. This is actually exaltation in the most literal sense of where you put the body to symbolically cause it to ascend into heaven. Not the angel of the Lord doing it, it's the bed that's doing it. The bed is the equivalent of the angel of the Lord. So if there was an angel of the Lord here, it would actually be the lion bed and not the bird. Got it. Okay. And of course um, the names that you mentioned those are all gibberish and don't exist and have nothing to do with anything Egyptian whatsoever and never did. Okay. So that's, that's five, six, seven and eight, which, which are the canopic jars, according to you, uh, Dr. Uh, Rittner. Yes. Um, yes, According to me and everyone else. And, and so Joseph names them God, idolatrous gods, Elkanah, Libna, Makmara and Korash. Really quickly, RFM, do we have any idea where those names come from? Do they appear like a town next door to Joseph or, you know, some apocryphal writing that he read? Do, do you know of any attempt to sort of figure out where he got those names? This has been a longstanding hobby of Mormon apologists to try and come up with some connection to either a place name, a person name, or pretty much any name you could come up with in any language, whether it's Egyptian or Mesopotamian or Hittite or Hebrew, and to come up with something in some other language at some other time that sort of sounds like one of these names and then to proclaim it as a bullseye. And? Well, uh, I guess then it depends upon uh, your own perspective. John Gee has recently published a paper on the four sons of Horus, uh, which are pictured there as five, six, seven, and eight, in which he engages in that exercise. He published it at the Interpreter Journal, the online journal, with the editor Daniel C. Peterson. And this is in the past two weeks that this came out. And he is so taken by the connections that he has managed to draw with Hittite and Mesopotamian names that he has proclaimed in the conclusion that the odds of Joseph Smith guessing these four names correctly are astronomical, and as he puts it, they are equivalent to winning the Powerball lottery three weeks in a row. Uh, wow, Dr. Rittner, I guess I guess a checkmate uh, on you by by John Gee. You know, I'm just I'm being silly. Do you have a response to John Gee's assertions? There, uh, you already used the word gibberish. Um, uh, my honest reaction. That's just pathetic. Oh, no. Tell us why. Uh, these are extremely well-known figures. The names are extremely well-known. We have surviving three-dimensional examples of these. Almost every museum, and mine has multiple copies. The Metropolitan has multiple copies. Every regional museum, any museum that has Egyptian objects probably has some of these. Most of these have the name and hieroglyphs written right on them. I don't have to make it up. It's right there. 
Um, John Gee knows that. He's, he has had training, even though he goes out of his way to ignore it and pervert it at every opportunity. Uh, in no case were these jars ever, ever associated with the Hittites or Mesopotamia. And if you can weasel out some, and the operative word is weasel, some kind of a connection to some far-flung place, that's meaningless because these jars never had anything to do with it. It doesn't make any difference. If, if you can find an Elkina coming out of Kentucky, that doesn't make it connected to a jar that has a known name and a known function and was never connected with that name in any context in the real world where I live, but John Gee does not. You know, now that you mention it, Kentucky does sound kind of like Elkina. <laughs> no, seriously, that's the kind of connections he draws. And by the way, uh, doctor, in his paper that did come out, this is John Gee's paper, in which he has no less than 119 footnotes, he somehow well, managed... followed me in that. I, I have always recommended lots of footnotes. <laughs> well, even with all those footnotes and in the body of his paper, he somehow manages to avoid actually ever once mentioning the real Egyptian names of these four sons of Horus. Let's do that, shall we? Would you, what are those names? Sure. Can we bring up the picture again so that I can walk people through them? I'm going to show, I have a slide coming up for that in a moment. Maybe, I don't know if you want to hold that. Do you want to jump to that and come back? Before we do, let's kill off the last two images or three images that we've got so that we can move to the next. Okay. So now we're 0 for 8. Um, we've got uh, 9, which is the idolatrous god uh of Pharaoh, so that's the alligator, the crocodile, and Joseph Smith is uh, is basically saying the crocodile is the idolatrous god of Pharaoh. Uh, what, I think we have our say first you? hit. We have our first hit, I think. Yes. Well, insofar as the crocodile is an Egyptian god, and therefore would be a god who would be worshipped by Pharaoh, that would be correct. It is not a god who is, however, of kingship or pharaohness. So it is not a god specifically linked to and exclusive to pharaoh. And the other problem that is clear from the book of Abraham is that Joseph Smith thought pharaoh was a personal name. So what he is saying here is it's the god who belongs to the man pharaoh as opposed to the title Pharaoh. And so he's still off even to the extent that this one is sort of a quote. All he's really saying in that remark is that this is an Egyptian God. And that doesn't take a whole lot of insight. Can I ask you something, Dr. Ritter? Are there any animals native to Egypt that are not in some way represented by Egyptian gods? No, <laughs> no. But the crocodile was particularly infamous as being the symbol of ancient Egypt, so much so that when uh, Augustus Caesar conquered Egypt, he issued coinage. And the main coin that was, that was labeled Egypta Copta, Egypt Captured, the symbol for Egypt was a crocodile. So he issued a coin with a crocodile and the words Egypt captured on it. So the crocodile has been the symbol of Egypt 
throughout the Mediterranean world because Egypt uniquely had them. Mm. The only other thing that was comparable was the hippopotamus. Right. Can I bring up one other point just in favor of the book of Abraham? Because I want to give it its due. This This isn't necessarily a hit, but whereas the description of facsimile one does have the bedstead, the lion couch, uh, labeled as an altar, I do have to mention that in chapter 1, verse 13, it does say about the altar, it says, it was made after the form of a bedstead. So it does apparently recognize that it looks like a bedstead, but then it may goof it up by going on to say, such as was had among the Chaldeans. Yes, well, it's it's easy enough to describe it as a bed because he's lying on it. <laughs> I think that's that's inferential. You can figure that out without much insight. But after the matter of the Chaldeans, wherever you want to put the Chaldeans who are Mesopotamians, no, this Egyptian bed was never ever found there. That's ridiculous. That's just should've, ridiculous. Should have stopped after the bedstead part. <laughs> yes. And just to be clear, do you, do you consider nine the 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 crocodile you know interpreted as the adulterous god of Pharaoh? Do you consider that a hit, Doctor Rittner? Only vaguely. Okay. I think in I said in my book, well, he got one right. Okay. But but only in the sense that it's a god whom Pharaoh would have worshipped. Got it. Okay, zero for nine. Uh, Oh, oh, so who is the crocodile? What is the crocodile? If Sobek. it's not, what's Sobek. that? Sobek. Okay, so in this image, it says the god Horus. Uh, I don't think Joseph Smith ever did Horus. You may be looking off the actual Egyptian. I think I think you must be looking on the right hand side. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying that's it's saying the modern Egyptological interpretation. I don't. I don't know. I don't know who. who who did that? There, there, there is a form of Horus linked to, to Sobek, uh, because Egyptians there's Egyptian syncretism where gods merge into others. But if it's going to be Horus merged with Sobek, typically it is a crocodile body with a falcon face, and those exist. So I, I'm not responsible for the, the statement that it's Horus, so I can't explain that. Yeah, yeah, this is just something I pulled off the internet that helps frame this discussion, but... Um, I, I mean, because of the complexity in Egyptian religion, yes, Horus can take on a form who's linked to Sobek. And in that myth, Sobek helps to ferry the body of the wounded Osiris across water. And so that could be a reason why he's depicted here. Got it. Okay. Um, the next one is 10, which, um, which Joseph, tell us, tell us what 10 is referring to. You told us before just what it looks like. To you? Well, what it actually is, is an altar. That's your altar stand on which, that's an Egyptian altar, uh, with uh, floral offerings on top. And there are wine jugs that are put on the left and right underneath it. It's a, with the wine jugs have a very distinctive shape with a little wide opening mouth there that's for either wine or it could be water jugs. 
And Joseph calls that Abraham in Egypt, which I have no idea how he got that. I, I don't have a clue what that's supposed to mean. I mean, I know there was the wheat and famine, you know, like seven years of bumper crops. I'm thinking of Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat here. That's my extent of uh, Egyptian knowledge, <laughs> biblical knowledge. So, so, so what I'm telling you, we still haven't gotten to the bottom, but what, what, what I'm telling you is that there is actually something that represents an interaction of an agent who elevates into the sky and protects, but that's the bed, which you right. misidentified as an yeah. altar. And there actually is an altar, but it's not for the sacrifice of humans, but for the offerings of plants and, f- and foodstuffs, and that he misidentifies as Abraham what, in Egypt, whatever on earth that's supposed to be. Dr. Rittner, I, I have read Hugh Nibley extensively, and I recollect that his argument for the accuracy of that was that that stand contained, I think, a lotus or some other kind of uh, plant life that represented the Egypt itself, and therefore it designated that what was occurring in the picture was occurring in Egypt. Abraham being in the picture, it could therefore represent Abraham in Egypt. What do you think of that explanation? Well, try selling that in court. I, I, I think in a legal court, that w- no one would take that seriously. I mean, that's, so, that, that, what I'm trying to say is that's unbelievably contorted. Okay, so the, um, is it a, um, a plant on it? Is it a... Um, oh, absolutely. It is certainly a plant. Is it ever used to designate the location of what's happening in the, uh, the vignette as occurring in a certain location? No. These oh. are just standard. These are just standard offering scenes. Okay. The, 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 the water lily or Egyptian lotus is a symbol of rebirth because it opens at sunrise. And so it's, it's, it's a symbol of coming into being like the sun comes into being each morning. So it is something that is offered to the dead to symbolize rebirth. And it is something that people carry at parties to celebrate festivities, just as we would give flowers now. So in the same way you'd give flowers at a funeral, now that's what the Egyptians did. So what I'm, what I'm understanding then and what I'm sort of starting to see is that perhaps what's going on is that Hugh Nibley and perhaps other apologists take a correct identification of one item, at least if they get that far. And then there's a speculation that leaps off of that correct identification in order to make sense out of Joseph Smith's interpretations. But that speculation falls flat as far as you're concerned. Yes. Well, I don't think it requires any particular uh, deep understanding to recognize that that's a, a, a water lily there because there are more than thousands of examples of this shown on altar. Any, any papyrus wall scenes will show you exactly the same scene with the plant very clearly distinguished as to what it is. So anyone with even a minimal knowledge of an Egyptian scene could pick that out and know what that is. So saying it's a lotus is not an insight. <laughs> uh, and knowing it's a stand for an all thing can be seen from literally thousands of examples, picking out the 
the kind of vessels that are aside, beside it, these aren't really very well drawn by the artist. The artist who did the Joseph Smith papyrus here was not a great artist. This is, you know, it's, 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 his primary role was to do the text. The picture is sort of schematic. But we have these from so many other examples where if you have fine artists doing it, we can be unbelievably precise about what these are. So there, there is no question about what they mean. And unless they mean Abraham in Egypt, on every wall scene in Egypt, because since this is something that's not found uniquely here, it's found everywhere over and over and over again, is it going to have a different meaning in all the nine other million places and only that meaning here? That's the kind of logic that Mr. Nibley was trying to put forward. It's like saying the letter A that we see in every letter, that in, in every inscription in English, has a special meaning in this one letter right here. In this piece of paper, the, the letter A has this nuance but on the wall over there and on my newspaper and everywhere else, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> that is Nibley's argument. And it's ridiculous. Can I say one other thing that is a little bit off topic? I don't want you to go crazy with this because I know you could go on for a long time. I just want to say I'm struck by the fact that the correct understanding of facsimile one is Osiris being raised to life, and it is supposed to also represent Hor, or the owner of this, this papyrus, and through this he becomes raised to life. And it sounds an awful lot like the Christian doctrine of all believers in Jesus being resurrected through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You noticed that, did you? <laughs> well, at first it sounded very strange how you were describing it, and then I thought, wait a second, this isn't strange at all. This is Christianity. Are you, yeah, are you inferring, RFM, that maybe Egypt, Egypt, Egyptology influenced Christianity? Is that what you're basically asking? Right now, I'm just saying, I'm just noting that it's a very strange idea, but then it's perfectly mirrored in Christian doctrine. Yes, well, I don't know how far you want to go off on a side. That's why I said. The official theology of the Egyptian king is that the on the night of his beginning, the god Ammon takes the form of the father and comes in looking like the father, visits the, wood, the future mother. He gives the sign of life to her nose, and she becomes pregnant, and she produces a child who is... <coughs> Sorry, 50% human and 50% divine, who is the savior of his people. And is the intercessor between the world of the gods and the world of humans. He was born of a virgin birth. Perhaps you've heard that before. <laughs> So, so it's possible, Dr. Rittner, what I think I hear you saying is that Egyptian myth possibly influenced Christian myth. 
This is what I show to my students who are shocked, appalled, and amazed all the time. <laughs> and just to be clear for me, are we saying that the Jesus figure in Egyptian religion is Osiris or someone else? Well, Osiris is like a Jesus figure insofar as he is the resurrection for Egyptians. But the, the story of the, the birth of, the, of a saving figure is also Pharaoh because he is the, he's, he's a god on earth for ancient Egyptians. And is, he does play the role in many respects that Jesus did because he is officially the only priest in all of Egypt. So all priests who function in Egypt are his delegates who are acting in his guise. So in theory, only the king offers to the gods, and all the priests are acting as imitators of the priests, of, of, the, of, of the, the king. So, so if, if I, I don't know how far you want to get into that, but, but there are many, 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 many connections between Egyptian religion and Judaism and Egyptian connections and Christianity. And of course, Jesus spent time in Egypt and the theologians who made Christianity largely did so in the city of Alexandria in a, in a philosophical school that had been a pagan philosophical school before it became a Christian one. And in late antiquity, the last major philosoph philosophers who were there teaching in the Alexandrian school before it Christianized, these people were also Egyptian priests of the goddess Isis and Osiris. Great questions, RFM. I'm so glad you're, you're with us. And Dr. Rittner, thank you so much. This is stuff I didn't expect to be learning, and I'm just, I'm blown away and, and loving it. So thank you to you both. Uh, just really quickly to clear this slide, um, and I know we've got some other things. So I think we're, we're now 0 for 10, 11 quickly. Joseph says it's these door-looking things at the bottom. He says they're designed to represent the pillars of heaven as understood by the Egyptians. Dr. Rittner, what, what's your interpretation of, of those doors at the bottom or door-like figures? It, it's, a, it's a wall design as represented by the Egyptians. It's the niched bricking facade that you can find even on it's, – it's something that's common between Egypt and Mesopotamia, and it was probably as a result of uh, in Egypt from back and forth trade in the earliest periods because you find it on ziggurats. Got so it. it's a it's a it's a design of bricking that's then used as a wall motif in Egypt. It doesn't represent the heavens; it represents a baseline, just the opposite. Got it. And then twelve. This looks kind of intense. Joseph says twelve, which I think ends up being the. I don't want to spoiler, but it's right next to the crocodile and all along, kind of the the strata that the crocodile is operating in. Joseph and his scribes say Rauki Yang, signifying expanse or the firmament over our heads. But in this case, in relation to this subject, the Egyptians meant it to signify Shaomao to be Hig or the heavens. Answering to the Hebrew. That should word. be high. High? 
Yeah. Okay. Are the heavens answering to the Hebrew word shamayin? So, Dr. Ridner, is that correct? No. <laughs> uh, no part of that. Uh, it is water. That is correct. But it represents not the firmament, but, but again, the Nile or a portion of the Nile. And so it's ground, not water. Yes, the Egyptians did have a concept of uh, a heavenly river on which the sun god rode in a boat, but there's no sun god here, and the crocodile is in it, which means it's underneath it, and it probably refers to the Lake of Khonsu, which is described in the actual text. So that's not a sky place. It's a portion of the embalming zone which is what you're actually seeing here because you're seeing the embalming taking place. So in summary, if you had, if you were grading this paper uh, and you had to grade it out of 12, so 12 out of 12 being perfect, what grade are you giving Joseph Smith and his scribes for the interpretation of facsimile one? F. F. How about from zero? even with the God of Pharaoh in there, can't we just, can we get a, a maybe an F plus or a D minus or something? No, no, no. Out of 12, like 0.5 out of 12, oh, one you out wanted, of 12. You wanted, a, you wanted a numerical grade? Yeah, give him a numerical grade. Out of out of 12, we'll give him one. Okay. He gets one? <laughs> yes. Well, that's a partial <laughs> one for the uh, God of Pharaoh. We're taking it. <laughs> So RFM's happy with that. I'm declaring victory and leaving the field. <laughs> All right. RFM's going back to church as soon as they let us. Okay. A little more seriously, Dr. Rittner and John, can I just tell you, having studied all this Egyptian uh, Mormon apologetic stuff, I'm frankly disappointed in this because although I could not give you the exact reference, it was probably Nibley or someone like him. Could you put that back up there for just a second there, John, the one you just had up? Absolutely. Um, And I just want to say that I remember reading and being very excited to read and find out and then even teach in firesides that 11, that basically this entire thing was correct, that 11 really did represent the pillars of heaven, that there was a basis for that in Egyptology, that 12 really was the waters of heaven because the heaven was seen as the waters. You've got the, the, uh, the, um, I'm sorry, the alligator, the crocodile the crocodile in the waters of heaven, but that's okay because he is a God and that's where gods would be is in the waters of heaven. And that all of these things were correctly translated. And I read this in Mormon apologetic material and I even taught it to other members of the church. So I'm being honest with you when I say, I'm frankly disappointed that this is so wrong that I was actually so misled by Hugh Nibley and John Gee and others and Mormon apologists in and being told that this was correct and backed up by legitimate Egyptology. Well, if I could intrude for just a moment, both of those individuals actually knew better. Uh, one thing I didn't comment on but should specifically is the phrase Rao Kiang is not Egyptian. It sounds... Chinese or Indonesian to me, but it's, I'm sure it's not. It's made up. Or perhaps it's a bizarre derivation from Hebrew. I don't know, because I, I don't know Hebrew. So I can't comment on the Hebrew word. But I, what I can tell you is that that's not, not, not an Egyptian word. And RFM, I love that personalization of the 
of the point, and I'll even take it one step further. If we had to estimate how many man hours, how much tithing money, how much cost and investment, how many, how much cost in, in research, in publication, in conferences, in scholars attending conferences, you know, how many millions of dollars have widows basically and others donated, Latin Americans donated to the church, people all over the world donating to the church, and then the church redirects those millions of tithing dollars so that they can pay the salary of Nibley and Gee and Mulstein and and support Fair Mormon in the background and, and the Maxwell Institute and and Jack Welch and just all the armies and armies of apologists for decades who have been spending millions of dollars of contributions, sacred tithing funds from the church to make these super specious and irresponsible and I guess according to Dr. Rittner almost laughable assurances or interpretations of this in the name of scholarship so that the the members of, of the church can't understand what really went on, but instead, you know, rely on the credibility of Hugh Nibley's lore or his PhD from UCLA or wherever he got it or John Lee's John John Gee's degree from Yale. Like it's a super waste of resources and a really monolithic lithic act of deception. And we're just on facsimile one. Now, now tell me, RFM, if I've misspoken or overspoken or overstated in the Dr. Rittner, I want to hear if you have anything to add as well. No, I would just say that not only have they taken advantage of John Gee and Hugh Nibley's credibility, they unfortunately have also taken advantage of my credulity. Because you you were a purveyor of these teachings. Well, right. I didn't know any better. I'm not uh, a student of Egyptology. I didn't go to Yale. I didn't go to uh, the Oriental Institute in Chicago. I'm relying on people who have credentials, who have studied, and who are representing to me that they are passing along correctly what they have studied and that the Egyptology that they have studied does support the Book of Abraham and the translation of the facsimiles. And Dr. Ridner, you're saying all of these men should have known better. Yes. Well, I, 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 what I'm actually saying is they did know better. Yeah. And, you know, for whatever reason, they chose not to express that yeah. and to look for ways to argue against what's obvious. Um, when I worked on the Book of Abraham, the reaction by my colleagues was, that stuff is ridiculous, why bother? No one would take that seriously. None of my colleagues. I mean, it's dismissible immediately, which is why all the way back to the Spalding book, which we'll eventually talk about, I'm sure, uh, this has been dismissed out of hand by everyone. And when I was first considering publishing the book and the idea was sent to a colleague to see whether the Institute would publish it, the response back was, why waste your time with something like this? It's ridiculous. I mean, this this is coming out of Germany. The remark was, it's just, why bother? I mean, it's it's so completely absurd. 
that no one would give it even five seconds of time. So no Egyptologist, real Egyptologist, would spend three seconds reading John Gee's article on Alkena. They wouldn't bother. I've only looked at it because I've been drawn into this and therefore uh, because I was publishing the, the Egyptian manuscript. But if, but if I had not been asked to read the actual papyrus, I wouldn't have spent a second on anything John Gee ever wrote. I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> it is. And we're going to thank you, Dr. Rittner. This is so valuable. And I'm going to refer back to a quote that came out of my wonderful interview with Shannon uh, Caldwell Montez. She, she quotes Elder Donnelly Chokes in 2002, who spoke at a dinner with a bunch of apologists. Um, and, you know, he basically makes this point, and here's a quote. Though argument does not create conviction, the lack of it destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one shows the ability to defend is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. And so there we have, you know, Downey Jokes basically saying, hey, apologists, we hire you for a very specific reason. We're not hiring you necessarily to create good answers because I think the church knows there aren't good answers. We're hiring you to create answers, and I would add answers backed up by uh, prestigious PhDs so that members of the church can just go, oh, well, John Gee went to Yale. He's smarter than me. Hugh Nibley has a PhD. He's smarter than me. He knows Egypt. He knows Egyptian. So I don't have to worry about this problem. It's not a problem. And we have it all the way to the top um, uh, of the church leaders basically saying that, that they pay apologists to come up with whatever answers they can so that members uh, won't ever question or doubt or lose, the, lose their faith. Um, well, John Gee wants to have it both ways. He tells his audiences that no one can critique or understand this document unless they have a degree in Egyptologist like him. But he won't discuss it with me because I have a degree in Egyptology like him. You know, which is it, John? Um, you're going to respond to me or you're not going to respond to me. If you don't want to respond to me because you don't have the facts, then don't tell people or pretend to people that you do. Because, quite honestly, John, you don't. Hmm. Thank you for your directness, RFM. Thanks for your feedback as well. Oh, by the way, about about Elder, um, what was that quote from Elder? Uh, Elder Oaks, Downey Oaks. Elder Oaks. Uh, just parenthetically, Elder Oaks has never been that articulate or eloquent in his entire life. What he's doing is quoting another person who I believe was Austin Farrar. Yeah, in the footnotes, I, I think you're right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Boom, baby. Thank you. <laughs> the Christian I'll be apologies. here all week. <laughs> That's awesome. Try the fish. Um, yeah, and what we're going to get to is that the church has known since at least 1912 the serious problems of the Book of Abraham, and they've intentionally cho chosen to cover up and obfuscate the problems. And we'll get to that. We're coming to it, but we have to finish um, the facsimiles. We oh, still have more images. Actually, yes. facsimile one. We have to finish facsimile one. Uh, and so in the next image, so Dr. Rittner has basically provided us with a few more images 
to give some important background on facsimile. One, we've covered a lot of territory, but Dr. Rittner, let's talk through these images uh, to close out this, this segment. Well, Tell us what the, we're seeing here. For those of you who can see this, let, let me describe it. We have an image on which the papyrus design was based. So you were seeing a scene that is carved in, in a special, highly restricted, super sacred uh, Osiris Chapel that is on the roof of the Temple of Dendera in the middle of Egypt. This is one of the most sacred special sites that was used for the special festivals of the month of Koyak, which was in Egyptian time when Osiris was revived. And this shows the precise moment when the corpse of Osiris, the dead god, killed by his brother who, lusted, who, who, who sought his kingdom. So he killed Osiris. Osiris is dead. His body has been pieced together by his son Anubis. Anubis is shown here with his hands extended over the god Osiris lying on the lion bed, not altar. Anubis has a jackal head. He has his hands extended out in prayer over with two hands extended praying for the benefit of Osiris. Osiris has his one hand to his face in the act of coming to life, scratching his face, waking up. And his penis is erect and it is inserted into a bird flying atop it, who is his wife, the goddess Isis, who is receiving his semen to produce his son Horus, who will be the next pharaoh and his avenger. And this is exactly what you've got in the uh, drawing, uh, much more schematically done on the papyrus. So this now, is what Joseph had described should have drawn in for facsimile one, for the missing parts. If we go to the next slide, there's a line drawing of this same thing. And if you look on the, the far right-hand side at the head of the bed, there is a goddess with her hand to her mouth or head. And that is the goddess who sometimes appears as a bird in that same position over the head of the, of the bed. And that's what I would suggest might be the, if, if you restore the head as a bird head, it's the goddess Nephthys. Got it. Interestingly enough, what you, the figure behind Anubis there is the god Horus, who is not yet born, but who is watching his own birth. Kind of like in the pre-existence, huh, RFM? That's what I was saying. He's in the pre-mortal existence. This is a Mormon. This That's is a Mormon it. document here. This is a Mormon carving. <laughs> he nibbly would be ecstatic. Okay, tell us what this next image is, uh, Dr. Rittner. Well, here we have an example of the same scene, not without Anubis, but again, the lion bed. We have the body of Osiris. This, this is a line drawing that was done early on by Mariette. 
in the 1800s, uh, and the penis has been hacked out probably by Christians. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> That's uh, got to hurt. They savagely attacked images of, of penises all the way through Egyptian temples. There are many gods who have erections. That's an, It's normal. I spend a lot of my time discussing images of erections. I'm sure my parents were so happy about that. <laughs> But you can see not only the goddess Isis being impregnated, but you see at the head and foot of the bed, here we have that bird form that I was talking about. Okay. Um, and if we go to the next one, here is a standard example now from a royal tomb of the same scene of Anubis with his hands extended over a body on, as you can see, a lion bed. And underneath it, you can see the four jars. And those are the canopic jars with the distinctive human, baboon, jackal, and falcon heads, which are the four canopic jars for the lungs, liver, stomach, and intestines. And you'll notice Anubis does not have a knife, but he's in the same posture. You'll notice he has a jackal head. You'll notice the bed has a lion head. You'll notice there's no knife involved at all. And here it's the wrapped mummy rather than an erect mummy. And this is, for, this is the more normal scene. So the Joseph Smith papyrus is really very exceptional in having a scene of the impregnation of Isis, which is a very specialized and especially sacred scene that most people wouldn't have seen or had. So this is something that comes from that particular scene that's in this special chapel in the, this major temple. And by the way, that temple is Ptolemaic in date, from the time of Cleopatra the Great. And it's roughly the same time period as the actual papyrus of Horus, the papyrus of Hor, that uh, is the Joseph Smith papyrus facsimile one. By the way, if I keep saying Hor or Horus, it's the same name. The, the, the name in Egyptian is Hor, but the Greek version of that is Horus. And so the god Horus and the, the man who's the priest named Hor have actually the same name. Got it. We, we tend to say the god Horus because it's come down to us through Greek Herodotus and other records. Got it. Can I ask you a quick, quick question, Dr. Rittner? I apologize. This is probably a dumb question, but as the Chinese say, there are no dumb questions, only dumb people. <laughs> so anyway, no. Um, in the papyrus that Joseph Smith had in his possession, uh, it's broken off, and I know that those are called lacunae and that those happen with regularity in papyri. However, it, it occurs to me that the place where it is broken off, the centerpiece of that seems to be the same place that was hacked off in this sculpture, which is right around the place where uh, that erection would have been with the bird above it. And I was wondering if prior to Joseph Smith getting it, perhaps even thousands of years, not thousands, but 8,000 or 2,000 years ago, perhaps that was broken off at some point, even intentionally by people who were offended by 
the depiction of the erect penis. Uh, is it probably just a coincidence, or I, might there I be something it's to that? Probably a coincidence because it's um, <laughs> these things are rolled and they break on the folds, and there was a crease there that goes right down through the middle, and it just it probably snapped off of where it was rolled. And the problem is that when Chandler was bringing these around, he was partly unrolling them. Uh, and so every time you do that with fragile documents, pieces are going to break off. And we know that happened actually once Smith bought them because he ended up gluing pieces from different manuscripts in the wrong places. And in my book, I had to put back these little patches and try to figure out where they originally went. And it was like a major jigsaw puzzle. Uh, because so many things had broken off and been glued back upside down, sideways, and in the wrong place, and even in the wrong document. So as they unrolled them, which we know he did, because that's described in the stories, that when visitors paid their whatever it was to come in and see them, he would roll them across the floor, and, and that would certainly cause damage. So it's just, it's probably just a natural thing. And after all, these papyri, like the mummies, had been shipped all the way from Egypt, where they could have already been damaged by boat to Italy, and then from Italy by boat to New York, and then on a wagon bumping from New York down to Philadelphia to New Orleans and to Ohio. So uh, they had an opportunity to suffer a lot. Okay, well, I thought I'd give it a stab. I just want you to know I'm still going to go with that premise for my dissertation. <laughs> Next. Okay, so to close out uh, the slides for facsimile. Yes, if, I think the next thing is going to be on the... Um, the Four so Sons of Horse. So here we can actually see who the Four Sons of Horse are. And so you can see them there drawn. This is from just pulled from Wikipedia page. So this is so commonly known that anyone can check this. You don't have to take my, it's, this is not my personal interpretation. Uh, it is well known, the Egyptians texts survive, which describe it specifically. And there are the gods, and there are their actual names that you can read. Imseti, which is the human-headed one. Duamutef, who is the jackal-headed one. Hapi, who is the baboon-headed one. And Kebesinuef, who is the uh, falcon-headed one. So there's not Elkina, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We have these names. We absolutely have these names. Anyone who wants to can look up Four Sons of Horus right now on the internet and read everything you'd want and see example after example after example. You don't need to take my word for it. And any attempt to make them be something connected to the Hittites is bizarre, just bizarre. If you go to the next slide, this is Book of the Dead 151, which is a major spell that is designed. Now, this would have been in a papyrus 
that would have been almost certainly in one of uh, the papyri that Joseph Smith bought, whether it was it survived and I did not survive in the copy that we still have, but it would have been as one of those the, the papyrus number two would have or the Tasheret men would have had it. And so we get statements to be said by Kebesenuef. So this is what the so-called idolatrous God actually is. This is the one with the falcon head. I am your son, O Osiris, so-and-so. Here would be whore. I have come to be your magical protection. I unite for you your bones and assemble for you your members. I have brought to you your heart. I have put it for you as a seat in your body. I have preserved the your house after you, for you are alive forever. To be said by the baboon one, I am Hoppy, oh, fill in the blank here. I have come that I may be your magical protection. I have attached for you your head and your limbs. I have smitten for you your enemies beneath you while you are alive forever. To be said by Duamutef, who is the jackal-headed one. I, O Osiris, I am your son Horus, your beloved. I have come that I may save my father Osiris from him who did him harm. That is the god Seth. I put him beneath your feet forever. If you trample something down, that means you have control over it. And here you're invoking Osiris, which means you're at the same time invoking the dead man, who is now merged with and a form of Osiris. To be said by Imseti, that's the human-headed one. I am your son, oh, fill in the blank here. I have come that I may be your magical protection. I preserve your house, abiding, abiding, as Ptah has commanded. That's the craftsman god at Memphis, as Ray, the sun god himself, has commanded. Then we have directions. Lo, one shall use this only when he is pure and spotless without eating goats or fish are going near women. In other words, you had to be ritually pure. After bread and burnt incense have been offered, no human sacrifice here, food offerings and incense. That's normal. That's what Egyptians offer, not humans. Uh, for thee to these gods. Ever, as for every blessed one for whom this is used, he shall be a sacred god, who is in the God's domain, and he shall not be kept away from any gate of the West. The Egyptians believed the underworld was in the West because that's where the sun set. He shall be a follower of Osiris wherever he goes, a truly excellent spell proved millions of times. So that's what's going on in that scene. That's sort of a, just a, a description or a, a narration almost, or a description of the ritual, right? If Hugh Nibley had been honest, he would have reproduced Book of the Dead 151 and said, this is what this scene is about. Now I have to admit, RFM, doesn't that kind of sound a little bit like proxy work for the dead when, when you hear him read that? Like what you would hear right before a, a Mormon temple, you know, baptism for the dead or or even an endowment ceremony, sort of this, th there's a little bit of ritualistic language that reminds me of the temple ceremony. Do you feel the same way, RFM? 
Well, I do, but I also have to caution myself that when my knowledge of ritual is limited pretty much to what I've experienced in the LDS temple, it is very common for me, as it is probably for most people, to interpret any other kind of ritualistic ideas from Egypt or anywhere else in terms of what it is that I already understand. So I'm trying to avoid that. But I did have a similar feeling to you. Um, can yes. I say, say something here about Please. these four sons of horse? Because I need to get another, another um, point in here for Joseph Smith, in addition to the one semi-point for the God of Pharaoh. Is it correct? Because in facsimile two, the four sons of Horus show up again in the hypocephalus there under figure six. And there, Joseph Smith translates that as representing this earth in its four quarters. Is it true that one of the interpretations or understandings about the four sons of Horus is that they could represent the four cardinal directions? Huh. In the so far as they are the number four, then yes, any any time you use the number four, you can always say that that kind of that, that has a connotation of the four directions. As far as Hugh Nibley is concerned, and I learned at their knees, John Gee's concerned, Carrie Muelstein's concerned, etc. The four sons of Horus being identified by Joseph Smith as representing the earth in its four quarters is presented as being the direct hit absolute bullseye that Joseph Smith got right in his interpretation of facsimile too. And I'm really, really disappointed to hear that you're telling me that's not necessarily the case. I'm telling you, if you got it right, that they are the number four. (laughs) The symbolism of four for the four corners is universal. Okay. I'm taking that as a hit then. Yeah. (laughs) So this is one, this is one, maybe it's a half of one, along with half of one for Pharaoh and uh, the crocodile god, Sobek. I'm going to add those together. I'm going to give me a big one right there. Okay. okay. One out of 12. Good job. Good job, Junkie. Well, and, well actually, know. actually, it's one out of a lot more than that because we had to go into facsimile two, which has a lot more uh, figures in it than just figure one or facsimile that's, one. Believe it or not, that's coming up, everybody. Uh, Dr. Rittner, you have one more slide you wanted to share with us, and I'm guessing that there's going to be some backstory for us to understand why this particular slide is is relevant at this point in the discussion. Well, in the various articles done by John Gee attempting to justify the legitimacy of Smith's interpretation of facsimile one, He states that there is an Egyptian papyrus that links the name Abraham to this scene. And that is even cited in the church's statement, the official online statement, to which I responded uh, a number of years ago. And... That is a papyrus from Leiden, which is a magical papyrus. It's third century, uh, I believe, A.D. So it is much, much later than the Book of Abraham, supposedly is said to be. It is much later than the actual papyrus uh, that we've got for the Book of Abraham. 
So if it is a, if it is connected, it would be after the book of Abraham, not before it. But the problem is, let's actually look at it and see what it is. It has nothing whatsoever to do with this tale of Abraham. And the, when one looks at the translation, and I've lost it off my screen now. Uh, can we pull it up? Yeah, yeah. So this, this is a picture of what? Tell our listeners. This is a picture of the uh, uh, Leiden papyrus, otherwise known as the uh, Papyri Greci Magikai, the Greek magical papyrus number 12, lines 474 to 79. It also has a number, as you can see there, PDM for for Papiri Demotiki Magikai, because this is a manuscript that is written both in Egyptian and Greek. It's written by Egyptian scribes who are fluent in both the Greek script and the Egyptian script. And what this is, is a sex spell. This is a love spell to force a woman to have sex with you. And this is part of a manual that would be like a cookbook, you know, a book of magical spells. If, if you wanted to, to, to have a woman come to you, you'd, you'd, go through, you'd flip, you go through the papyrus and find this. And it's very fragmentary. It's largely broken away. But the parts of it that survive say you bring a seal, something of copper, and a lion, and a mummy, and Anubis, while they seek something with a scarab, and then you recite magical words. These are abracadabra words that don't mean anything even in Egyptian. Adio orich tambito Abraham huat planio, etc., etc., and and uh, and the whole soul for her fill in the her name, whom then fill in the name of her mother, the female, and unfortunately your picture of. My picture, uh, your picture is blocking my screen here. The female body of her fill in her name, who so and so bore. I conjure by a god whose name is broken to inflame her, her name again here, her mother's name there. Write these words together with this picture on a new papyrus, and you get the scene of the lion bed with the mummy of Osiris and Anubis, who had been described as what you write. So there you have in the text an actual mention, although it's broken, of the lion bed, the mummy. Uh, and the reason for this is this is that moment in which Osiris comes to life and impregnates Isis. And that's what you want to happen to this woman, that she will be inflamed in the same way by invoking this image. And you'll notice Abraham is in there 
but he is not obviously part of a story unless there's some interesting, really exciting part that Joseph Smith left out. And I'd like to read that part. But instead here, it's invoked just because it's a magical name. The Egyptians made use of every god imaginable. The Egyptians evoked Mesopotamian names, Greek names. Uh, they even invoke Exodus and invoke Yahweh, one of the most popular gods to mention in this papyrus is Yao, which is a form of Yahweh's, because the Egyptians accept all gods. They never persecuted any god. They accepted every god, including the ones who persecuted Egyptians. So the, what they did is every wise man, they would also put their name because they thought they had power. So it is here, Egyptians invoking the name of Abraham as a wise man. But this is done in the Roman period. Because they, not because of their personal experience with Abraham, but because now they're aware of the Bible. So they're pulling this information out of the Bible and actually citing the Bible, Abraham. And so that is their magical name. It's like saying conjuring by the by Solomon who controls demons. And Dr. Ritter, just just because I I'm not familiar with this, and I want to make sure I understand, tell us how to tie this back to the Book of Abraham and Mormon apologetics. This has the word Abraham. It is a, so. It is here in a spell that shows the lion bed. But it's the lion bed that's used like the lion bed is used all over the place. It has nothing to do with the book of Abraham. It's simply fortuitous that it's, it's a coincidence that it has, it happens to be the same scene that's on the Joseph Smith papyrus because nothing about this papyrus relates to the story of Abraham in Egypt. But as an apologist, as a Mormon apologist? Abraham is here simply because he's a magical name, and it's no more significant than the other, etc., that's there as, as abracadabra. And yes, it's been mentioned specifically by John Gee repeatedly as a connection showing that Abraham and the lion bed are related. The, the abracadabra here isn't is not invoking the lion bed. It's merely a magical power to make the woman come and jump on your body. By the way, uh, if I can just intrude here and answer your question, John, this is something yes that I I first saw about twenty years ago. Now it was in an insights which was the name of the like monthly newsletter from the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies, in which this was proclaimed as being a huge support for the Book of Abraham, because the Book of Abraham, of course, has facsimile one, which has a lion couch scene, and it represents it as being Abraham on the lion couch or on the altar. And here we have a legitimate ancient um, 
piece of papyrus, this Leiden manuscript, which has a lion couch scene, just like in facsimile one. And I think it's actually below it written in Greek in the actual um, uh, document, even though here the transliteration is above it. Um, there is the name Abraham. So there is this connection now in the Leiden manuscript between Abraham and a lion couch scene and facsimile one. So now it is not out of the question that Abraham would have something to do with a lion couch scene as it is represented in the book of Abraham. And this was rather trumpeted with some vindication at the time. And where you'll find this in the essay, John, is it's just one sentence. There is a section here toward the end, which is called the book of Abraham in the ancient world. And this is where they try and trot out their connections to this. And by the way, they do have the connection about the, um, the four sons of Horus and the four quarters. They say Joseph Smith represented the four figures in figure six of facsimile to as this earth in its four quarters. And they say a similar interpretation has been argued by scholars who study identical figures in other ancient Egyptian texts. They give a footnote there. I won't go there right now, but they go on later on and they say, when this one line, here it is, a third century papyrus, this is the Leiden papyrus. They don't mention it by name, but it says, a third century papyrus from an Egyptian temple library connects Abraham with an illustration similar to facsimile one in the book of Abraham. And there they give footnote 44, and they link that to, oh, an article by Twetness, Hauglid, and Gee. But it's excerpts from P. Papyrus Leiden. And so, yeah, this is something where they're referring to this very drawing. Thank you, RFM. That's so valuable context. And I've heard you and Bill Real talk about that in your wonderful three-part series on the Book of Abraham. And let me just ask you this, Dr. Ridner. Like, okay, you, you know, maybe you don't share a Mormon set of beliefs. Maybe RFM and I don't much these days either. Let's just say you're John Gee or Hugh Nibley or Carrie Milstein or whoever, and you know you do have a PhD in Egyptology. You do understand, you know, Egyptian, and you do come across this manuscript. Is there any world where it's reasonable to then put this in front of a Mormon audience, a believing Mormon audience, a questioning Mormon audience, and try and make the case that it somehow substantiates, uh, you know, uh, the authenticity? of the Book of Abraham translation as we have through Joseph Smith. You know, trying to trying to realize that these men are likely sincere believers. They likely really believe the church is true. They know that the Book of Abraham is on the ropes. They're, they really want to find reasons for people to still believe. They're probably not intentionally trying to deceive. So let's just say they come upon this. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, wow, cool. The word Abraham is, is with... Anubis and and the the lion bed like wow that's significant is it respond is it is it reasonable in any stretch for them to have sort of tried to to use this to bolter the book book of Abraham yes or no and if yes or no why or why not well I can understand why they did it and uh, it's an interesting conjunction however if the lion bed were a unique or rare phenomenon, then the conjunction would be really striking. But because I can walk into any Egyptian museum and turn around and find a lion bed within five minutes, 
on many, many things, on papyri, on drawn on coffins, actual lion beds in some cases, uh, on wall reliefs. Uh, it is a very, 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 very ubiquitous motif. It, it is not at all unusual or, or exciting. Uh, so you, if the, it, Abraham is only used a few times in the magical papyri, but you also get other figures that are used in the magical papyri. Uh, so if you talk about Abraham, you have to look at where Abraham is used. And in no case, I mean, the, the couple of cases in the whole, the whole, all of the magical texts, never is he used in relation to this, to the Book of Abraham story. He's merely being used as a prophet of early times. And these are late, late, late texts by which time they're drawing it not from any personal memories. These are not ancient texts. These are not early texts. These are ones that are themselves derivative of the Bible. Because in some cases they quote it. So that I mean that's why Abraham is taken. So if Abraham, so what you're telling me is if it's legitimate, it means the book of Abraham influenced this AD papyrus. So where's the intervening evidence to show it was around and influencing things? So the, the dates don't work. Uh, the context doesn't work. You can't say, oh, this is special because the, look, the, uh, the lion bed is there. Well, yeah, because the lion bed is on everything. Uh, so the lion bed is not a big deal. That's not particularly surprising. And why is the lion bed there? For the reason that I explained, because it's a reference to Osiris's power to engender sex. And uh, this is a sex spell. And that, that isn't actually what I saw in the book of Abraham. I mean, maybe there are more chapters that he didn't get to. But it's, it's not, you know, in the story we have. So if you're saying that this is a connection, what you're saying is that Smith left out the good part. Well, Dr. Rittner, I have to remind you that, that God blessed Abraham that his seed would be as numerous as the sands of the desert or as the stars of the sky. Maybe that's, maybe that's what we're seeing happening. Okay. And before we leave that, before we leave that, I have to bring up the fact that I was disappointed in Carrie Muelstein, who's one of the two preeminent Egyptologist apologists for Mormonism in the book of Abraham. And he is on record in a video, and you probably know which one I'm talking about. It may have been a response to your video that you did initially in 2002 or so, but or 2012. But he is on record as saying, referring to the Leiden manuscript, that it contains the name Abraham and that actually translated the words are, Abraham is upon the lying couch. Have you heard him actually say that? Because I have. No, I have not. We, we have to get the audio. Especially intriguing is a lion couch scene, roughly contemporary to the Joseph Smith papyri that mentions Abraham. 
the Leiden Demotic Papyrus, um, which dates to about the same time frame and again from roughly the same location, it has a lion couch scene and we don't have the entire uh, portion of the papyrus left, but there is definitely a lion couch scene with the name Abraham right below it. it. It is associated somehow with that graphic. In there is a lion couch scene. It's actually part of a love charm. And the text says, it's got a picture of a man on a lion couch, and the text says, this, or Abraham upon his couch. By the way, in the three-part piece that Bill Reel and I did in a separate podcast, uh, it's about a year and a half ago, we do play the audio there. So it is of record, and he did say that. Um, but I wanted to get your take on that. I'm on record now as saying something I don't like having to do, but I will. Uh, Terry Mulsang was trained at UCLA. Uh, I know from the professors who taught him there that he was not taught late Egyptian hieratic, nor was he taught demotic. So he, can, he has not been tamed, trained in the script in which the Book of Abraham, quote-unquote, or the uh, breathing permit of horror was written. So where he made an attempt to critique and evaluate my transcription and understanding of that document as opposed to Michael Rhodes, he doesn't actually have the background to make that decision. He might know Middle Egyptian hieratic. It's very, very different. Michael Rhodes couldn't read uh, Ptolemaic hieratic if his life depended upon it. I mean, that he's not been trained. And our listeners don't know who Michael Rhodes is. I'm guessing many of them don't. He, he produced a book in competition with mine. Uh, I was denied access to seeing the papyrus, actually. The, I, I petitioned to see the church before I ever started working on the papyri. I was told I could not. And they got Michael Rhodes to do a book instead. And Michael Rhodes basically recycled the translation of Hugh Nibley from many years before. Um, but more to the point, to answer the question, RFM, that you just asked me, Demotic is a highly specialized field within Egyptology. It is a sub-subspecialty. Most of my colleagues 80% cannot read a word of demotic. Carrie was never trained in demotic. So, Demo so he cannot read the script that he has said, that you're telling me he is describing. Demotic is tough. That is my specialty. And when I got my PhD, you have to, at Chicago, sight-read a text that is suddenly handed to you out of nowhere. And the text I was handed happened to be this papyrus. It's extremely complicated, and this is, n this is not merely complicated demotic. It's Roman period demotic, and there are three kinds of demotic because it changes over time radically. So most people who read Demotic don't read Roman period Demotic either. But that's my fort. That's my strong point. So I was handed the very thing we are now talking about, thrust in front of me 
and said, keep going until I tell you to stop. And I transliterated it and read it aloud in front of a group of who individuals who would be my peers. And I got honors because I read it flawlessly. So that I can do. Did you get to the part where it says Abraham upon the lion couch? Um, yes. Unfortunately, that section is broken. The word lion is there. Who is there? But they're not even in the same sentence. Does that answer your question? I th- if I'm understanding you correctly, um, Carrie Mulesine was engaged in a little bit of um, maybe wishful misrepresentation of what the actual translation is. That is correct. And, and I guess I want to ask the same question we asked earlier, whether it's Guy or Mulstein or, or whoever was involved in, in discussing this, putting this forward as some type of proof. In your view, Dr. Rittner, did they know better? Do they know better? They should. Yes, I'm sure they do. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think you've been super, I mean, I'm just over the moon ecstatic at your generosity, Dr. Rittner today. We're, you know, we're only, I don't know, a third of the way done with, uh, with our, this presentation. We have a lot yet to go. I, I, I'm guessing you're feeling ready to call it, call it a day today, right, Dr. Rittner? Uh, I've probably irritated enough people at this point. (laughs) (laughs) And RFM, I know you got, I know RFM, you changed some plans to be able to be with us today, but, uh, wow. What an amazing first several hours with, with you, Dr. Robert Rittner and with you, RFM, RFM, anything you want to say in closing? No, just that it's been wonderful to talk with Dr. Rittner, somebody who is a really highly regarded Egyptologist. And by the way, I don't know that um, he would toot his own horn enough, but I think that he's doubtless within the top five or 10 Egyptologists in the world today. And would I be far off in saying that, Dr. Rittner? Uh, I wouldn't wouldn't want to make that claim. Are Uh, you denying it? I would say that I have been given a unique chair in Egyptology in the United States. And so that kind of speaks for itself. And I'll, I'll let that, <laughs> let that ride. You, my CV is available online. <laughs> what I a would gentleman. Like to say one thing before we, we go for the end of the session, if I might, please. And that's to speak to your audience. Um, Over the years, I have had an array of letters and emails coming in. Uh, Some of them have been extremely negative, but a large number of them have been extremely kind. And I have been able to answer some of them. I haven't been able to answer all of them, but I want to thank those of you who have written me kind letters. I'm also interested and amused by those who've written me very negative ones. But there was a time I was getting extremely negative ones. And um, then suddenly I got so many that there was even a website that was posted with, I think, 59 responses thanking me for my work. Uh, I really appreciated that. 
I have put a link to that on my personal website for the Oriental Institute. I had to fight, by the way, with my administration to do that. They didn't want to have anything to do with Mormon issues for fear of losing donations to my institution. So anyway, thank all of you for your interest. I hope I haven't annoyed you more than necessary today. And um, again, thanks much. No, you, you've been brilliant, Dr. Rittner. Um, I can't thank you enough. Our people thank you. I, I promised Dr. Rittner, he, he talked to me about some of the disturbing letters or emails that he's received from uh, kind of Danite-like modern cyber uh, apologists who were angry that he would share with us his scholarship in any way that might uh, challenge Orthodox Mormon faith. And it's been really sad to see that anyone would mistreat a gentleman and a scholar like Dr. Rittner just for sharing his expertise um, with no real axe to grind. So I want my listeners to make me proud and uh, an email Dr. Rittner. Uh, it's r-rittner at uchicago.edu. And tell him how much you love him. Tell him how much you appreciate him. Tell him how much his work has meant to you, how much this episode and future episodes mean to you so we can flood his inbox with thankful, grateful, positive emails. Uh, because basically what we're doing is allowing people to base their lives on reality and not on distortions and uh, misperceptions um, and untruths. Because people's time and money and lives and reputations deserve to be based on truth. So that's what we're doing here. And that's why we need to show uh, Dr. Rittner our thanks. And I'll close as I began. Uh, you know, Dr. Rittner is facing kidney failure and is in need of a living donor to secure his life and continued research. If you can help or if you know anyone who can help, please contact Dana McLean, Northwestern uh, Medicine Transplant Coordinator, 312-695-0828. Uh, living donors save lives. So let's get Dr. Rittner uh, a kidney and let's allow him to continue his wonderful research and just let him allow him to continue being an amazing human on this planet because we need uh, as much Dr. Rittner on this planet for as long as we can. Um, I hope we're not embarrassing you with our, with our praise and gratitude, Dr. Rittner. Yes, actually you are, but, <laughs> <laughs> but no. thank you. That's very, it's extremely kind. <laughs> so, uh, so dear listeners, uh, RFM and I will be back uh, in a couple days. We're going to come back with Dr. Rittner. We're going to talk about facsimile two, facsimile three. We're going to talk about the Kirtland Egyptian papers. Uh, what are they called? The Joseph Smith papers. Is that right? RFM? Abraham Egyptian Papers is the current nomenclature, I understand. By the way, before I sign off, I just want to say something to all of my listeners as well. If, that, if any of you are predisposed to write anything negative to Dr. Rittner in regards to his position on the Book of Abraham, I just want you to stop for a second and think to yourself, what would Osiris do? <laughs> I want to know what Anubis would do. I think that's the question. I want to know what Seb would do. Would Anubis take his arm with a knife and strike Dr. Rittner, or would Anubis put out his arms in a blessing and protect and bless Dr. Rittner? That's, I think that's the question, isn't it, RFM? Well, I think Seb would cut him into 72 pieces. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Excellent. Okay. And we'll be talking about Mormon apologetics in the book of Abraham and uh, different, different attempts over the years to try and attack and or rescue uh, the book of Abraham. So there's a lot more to come, but today has been brilliant. Again, thanks, Dr. Rittner. Thanks, the brilliant RFM. And thanks to all you listeners who support Radio Free Mormon. Donate to Radio Free Mormon. Donate to Bill Real and Mormon Discussions. And please donate to Mormon Stories Podcast at mormonstories.org so that we can continue providing you with this type of programming. RFM, do you want to tell people how to find your podcast? Yes, RadioFreeMormon.org. Very easy to remember. John, can we get that phone number once again for the kidney donation? Just because I think that's the most important thing here. Dana McLean, 312-695-0828. And I will make sure and share this number and the name on the, the show notes for uh, the MormonStories.org podcast post. And I'm sure you'll do that too on, on the, the simultaneous post on RFM. Absolutely. Brilliant. All right. Um, thanks, everybody. Thanks, Dr. Ridner. Thanks, RFM. We'll see you guys soon on another episode of Mormon Stories Podcast and Radio Free Mormon. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.